Hi and welcome to Sweetman Podcast and this is Simon Sweetman and this must be episode 38. Uh, podcast brought to you by Phantom Bill Stickers. We get support too from Yeastie Boys and Lafare. They give us beer and coffee when people come to my house and sometimes I go out into the field and find people somewhere. Sometimes I go to their house. This is an example of that. I went and visited Wellington filmmaker Costa Botez. Uh, Costa is uh, probably best known really now as a documentary maker and a, and a film educator. Um, but he's, made, he's had a couple of goes at making feature films too, uh, narrative feature films, and plenty of short film work. Um, one of the things he's best known for is being one of the filmmakers behind the great uh, prankster film Forgotten Silver. Um, the other filmmaker being Peter Jackson or Sir Peter Jackson. So um, we talk quite a lot about that and uh, their friendship uh, in the early years and um, and then how they sort of live and move and operate in different spheres. Now, Costa's uh, had a background too. For about a decade, he was the film reviewer for the Dominion, the Wellington newspaper. So he's a pretty keen student of film and a pretty um, wise um study you know pretty pretty up with uh all the technical and uh and and uh, various things around film uh, a great knowledge i met costa about 10 years ago actually i interviewed him for a magazine and and enjoyed talking to him enjoyed finding out about his life up to that point um he had done uh some work making some uh behind the scenes documentary films on the making of lord of the rings he'd shot um hundreds of hours of footage and whittled it down to about 10 or 15 and then from there to about 2 or 3 so I watched some of that raw footage about 10 years ago and, and found that actually more for me I found that more interesting than the Lord of the Rings films so we talked a bit about that too um, and he's had this he's, he's he plays a bit of music he's a keen musician and music fan he's made a lot of music documentaries he's sort of championed a lot of I guess underdogs people like the the Great Wellington uh, band the Windy City Strugglers um, and he's made little documentary portraits of, of local musicians and captured gigs and then he's had some success in recent years with some international documentary subjects like, like the film Candyman um, so it's a pretty big talk about a whole lot of stuff really including uh, we get pretty philosophical I think towards the end talk about life and uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed catching up with him again and um, I hope you enjoy this conversation that's it's me talking with Wellington filmmaker Costa Botes. Now I met you about 10 years ago I think it was um, for a sort of, flies. yeah exactly <laughs> uh, uh, well I think it was about that I think it probably yeah. was I think it was about 2006 hmm. maybe it Maybe it was even before that. Anyway, I had to do some sort of print interview uh, about your, you know, what you'd done, and um, and at that point you'd given me about twelve hours of Lord of the Rings behind the scenes footage to had I to look uh-huh. through, <laughs> and um and I and I watched more of that than I actually watched of the finished films and, and found it more interesting. Because oh well, sometimes I hear that, and <laughs> yeah. I've got to admit I find it incredibly flattering. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think it is interesting behind the scenes, you know, when you get that, that, that kind of privileged glimpse. Yeah. yeah, and I think for me, I mean, I, I just, Lord of the Rings was something that I just couldn't, uh, as, I don't re- remember being particularly attached to the book or any of the books mm. in that sort of vein, and therefore for the film, for me, it just didn't, 
I could appreciate that there was some mm. clever stuff going on and some big names attached, but it just didn't mean anything to me. Yeah, so some I, people take it that way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not just being a contrarian. I think no. um, I, I've heard that again from several people, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I loved the books when I read them, yeah. and um, and I think Peter did an extremely good job yeah. on on the films. I think I think they were a, a great visualization. But your footage, your footage was, you know tied to that but also it, it was just about on the set of a film you know you didn't have to be you know you didn't have to be the biggest Peter Jackson supporter in the world you didn't have to be a Lord of the Rings fan if you had that aspect to it then maybe that footage was even more interesting but it was just interesting seeing behind the scenes or behind the curtain of, of a production that big that kind of extraordinary well you have to appreciate that that you know what I did in terms of documenting the behind the scenes was done in an atmosphere of chaos yes. uncertainty <laughs> confusion yeah I was caught up in it like everyone else was mm-hmm. and I wasn't aware really of what I was doing until much later mm. when I sort of thought more consciously about the sorts of films I was making uh, yeah. and I realize now in hindsight that I was doing what I kind of tend to always do which is I was documenting persistence. Mm-hmm. That that's the great theme that attracts me, and and mm. and it attracted me unconsciously, and now I'm more aware of it, and it attracts me consciously. So I was documenting not only Peter's persistence, uh. but the persistence of every individual I came mm. into contact with, and I was doing it in a particular style. And I guess again, unconsciously, mm. um, I picked up this idea that when you make a documentary. Um, that, that, that it's a synthesis of being observational, just sitting back, watching, listening, and also applying some kind of story craft to it as well. Mm, mm. So, yeah, I was really caught up in a maelstrom in that project in all kinds of ways. It'd be and pretty hard not to be just with yeah. the scope of it, I suppose, too. But, but uh, yeah, what interested me about that, too, was thinking about talking to you again, was, yeah, it does seem to be that you've moved into documentary from there, from mm. there and obviously scaled back, um, picked smaller topics, um, more idiosyncratic things, for a bunch of reasons, as you say, becoming conscious of what actually draws you to it. But I've kept up with most of the films that you've made since then, maybe not all, but but, uh, and and you sort of also, uh, I think sort of, in part with that documentary work and slightly, slightly to the side of it has been the sort of music focus, the small little music Films where you, you know, where you kind of picking. I don't know if they're cult heroes or what they are, but again, like yeah. underdogs. You know. Yeah, I suppose I suppose they they're underdogs. Yeah, mm. um, but they're more people that are accessible to me. Yes. People that I, yeah. you know, there'd be artists even in New Zealand that I'd, I'd love mm. to work with and make a film about. Yeah. But for whatever reason, they're, they're probably not accessible to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've, I've actually haven't done a lot of that more recently. Mm, mm, um, mm. I, I did find it a wee bit thankless, yeah, yeah, <laughs> actually, and um, there's certainly sure. no um, market reward for it. And, and you've got to pick and choose, you know, um, because these things take time. Yeah. Um, I've always been interested in documentary, and I think as a result of the Lord of the Rings uh, experience, I just felt a need to be way, way more independent. Uh-huh. And it's it's impossible to be independent unless you scale your... Yeah, yeah. Um, expectations right back mm-hmm. and you know so the path I took was well here we have this technology that allows you to um, you know get a high quality picture with a small camera um, a technology that you can master 
uh, in terms of editing fairly quickly. Yeah, so I just I just like the idea of being a one man band. I yeah. like the idea of um, authorship really that you know that you could actually sign your name to a film and you could say hand on heart I made that. Mm, mm. Um, I wasn't collaborating with 50 or 60 other people, so maybe there's a bit of ego involved there too. I don't know. Yeah. I do like collaborating. Um, I've got a number of um, people that I've worked with over the course of several films, like composer Tom McLeod would be a, a major yeah. one. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine my films without his music on them. Mm. Um, and you're connected to Peter, obviously, because one of the things that comes up for both of you is Forgotten Silver. Well, I'll always be connected to Peter for that, but I, I and even before I mean even before that, obviously, yeah, which well, leads yeah, to that, yeah. that collaboration. But that's something that is yeah. mentioned. Although that, that the connection with Peter has, has you know it doesn't exist now. Um, right. I haven't spoken to him for many years. Yeah, and yeah. Um, uh, you know there was no rupture or, 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 or whatever. It's just yeah, he, yeah. he went one way, I went the other. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you know, his world just doesn't collide with mine. I mean, yeah. I'd love to sit down and have a beer with him or something. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, he, he's he's sort of he sits at the left hand of God these days. And, yes. And I don't. So yeah. um, you know, and I'm actually quite happy where I am. So, yeah, yeah. So that's well, where we are. Well, let's let's go back. I mean, some of the stuff we might have talked about sort of ten years ago, um, but let's go back. You might have a different spin on it now, uh, and I might have a different way of, of of trying to pry it from you. But let's let's go back to sort of uh, how I know you've music's been a a big part of your life too, and an interest to something you know you you play mm-hmm. music, and obviously it's a component of your work as a filmmaker. But um, can we go back to sort of what drew you to music and or film? You grew up in Wellington. Yeah, I did. Um, I, I was born in um, uh, a little island off the coast of Turkey. Um, my family are Greek. Yeah. Um, and immigrated here in the very early sixties. So I was about three years old, I think, when I came back. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I grew up in New Zealand. Um, I couldn't speak a word of English the first day I went to school. So I had I had a kind of sense of alienation almost instantly. Mm. Um, and then a sense of, of wanting to understand and fit in. So I think I'm a typical immigrant child in that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, caught between two two cultures, desperately wanting to be um, part, of, part the, of something, the host culture. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, and tied uh, to where you've come from. Yeah, yeah, so I think I think I actually grew up with enormous amounts of fear. Um, I'm conscious of that now in middle age. You know, I, I can understand it now. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I didn't then um, because uh, you, you're in a, a a place where you can't understand what people are saying. Mm. And um, I mastered English very quickly, and I think I, I used that. I used language. Um, to, I guess, protect myself and, and, and to find a way in this world. And, um, yeah, I think those things shaped me quite a bit. And uh, um, Did you have to teach your... Um, did you have to help sort of facilitate teaching English to your parents? Or were they stubborn against the language, or did they learn... No, both, both my parents... Um, learn to speak English you have to really yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean to this day they, they haven't mastered the language yeah and yes absolutely I, I, I would frequently have to help them out or, or mm, you know mm, read mm. letters or translate things yeah yeah so where does where does the sort of pop culture come into it for you when do you get drawn to you know do you go to the movies as a kid or and TV and stuff is 
music like is it the Beatles is it that light bulb moment is it Dylan <laughs> well you know is it all of these things or is it nothing it was the all? movies first yeah absolutely and, and my, my parents would um, go to the movies every Friday night mm. and they take me with them and what they watched it was quite indiscriminate it was whatever, yeah, whatever right. was on and we'd go to the um, so you understood not a lot of it sometimes and then you grew to understand things that other yes, people weren't yes, your yeah. age weren't seeing at all and well, much later, but yeah. but yeah, as a child, I went to the movies uh, first with my parents, and I saw some mind-blowing things. Mm. I remember a film called Fantastic Voyage, which really blew my little mind um, and gave me a sense of what cinema could do. Um, you mentioned the Beatles, definitely a light bulb moment right there. Mm. I, as a seven-year-old, I think, I went to see a double feature of um, Help, yeah and hard days night right yeah and um that made a huge impression on me i mean that amazing music and which i didn't even understand but you know um and and the images what i do remember is coming home and uh my mum had a little mandolin and i remember grabbing it and jumping in front of the mirror and Mm. and making a noise (laughs) no idea what i was doing yeah um but i remember that quite clearly so something must have happened yeah and uh yeah, I mean, it, probably not until adolescence that I got much more seriously interested in music, you know, like actually going, oh, maybe I can make some noises here mm. and learn to play the guitar or whatever. Um, but movies were very early uh, influence, and I was interested in pictures and how you make them. And mm. uh, I, As a gift, I got a box browning camera, and that was just like white man's magic, you know, like yeah. it's an amazing thing that you look through and... and uh, in the, the film and send it away and yeah. it comes back as photos you know incredible mm. when does this become like a weekend hobby or I don't know what the next stage is you don't straight away make a movie obviously you're still growing up so but when does it go beyond just a regular visit the, to the movies the, the, the notion of making movies never seriously occurred to me until my middle teens uh, I had no idea people made films in New Zealand. You know, mm, I, I mm. just thought films were something that people made somewhere else, and, mm, and mm. then they came here and you saw them <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. cinema. And um, you don't even really know <laughs> quite where or what Hollywood is. Or yeah, yeah. And um, it was watching TV in the um, sort of early seventies that made me aware that there were people out there actually making films. And mm. Names like Roger Donaldson, Jeff Murphy came up. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah. Because they were making things that were sort of odd and eccentric and kind of interesting. Mm. Um, Ian Mune and Roger Donaldson did a film called a little film called uh, The Woman at the Store, uh, and then they did a series called Winners and Losers. And that made a big impression on me. I was aware of Jeff Murphy and the whole Blurter yeah. experience. Um, and you know, as you got up to the mid seventies, these guys were getting into making feature films, mm. and. It wasn't easy to get to see them. They weren't widely distributed, but I was aware that they were doing it. And that kind of inspired me. I just didn't know how to join the dots. And mm. also they were making <clears throat> quite distinctly New Zealand stories. I mean, that the some of the tools are there from, obviously, from watching Hollywood and outside <clears throat> of Hollywood <clears throat> films, but they were actually making New Zealand stories, right? Making, capturing New Zealanders doing weird or downright boring things well they they were making films in New Zealand and the fact that they had Kiwi topics um, 
I wasn't aware of how important that was. Yeah, actually. yeah. It was more. It was more like, oh, these guys are actually out there. Yeah, you know, you doing do, stuff. You can do this. You can do yeah, this yeah. here. Yeah, and yeah, and then the question of how. Well, um, you know, I I met someone, um, or I knew someone whose dad was a cameraman, mm. and he had some little Bolex cameras lying around, and he allowed us to go out and play. So mm. Mm. I really learned. Um, going out with a you know hand wound sixteen uh, mil bollocks camera, and we begged, borrowed, and stole <laughs> um, film stock. Yeah, and we'd sort of oh, I can't I can't really say how we did it, but <laughs> we processed the film and, and looked at it. We had no idea what we were doing, no idea mm. how you actually edit things. Um, just experimenting. Just experimenting. But you know I had I had movie film in my hands. Yeah, and. I started figuring out stuff about, you know, um, photography, about how you get a decent exposure, what filters you use. So I was learning that stuff as a sort of 16, 17-year-old. Mm. Um, again, no idea where this might go uh, until I saw on a notice board a, um, a notice from the National Film Unit advertising for cadets. Mm. Well, it turned out, you know, like a, my whole life is like this. I, I was that a little bit too late. <laughs> So I never got to be a cadet at the film unit, and which might have been a lucky escape because it wasn't too many years mm. after that before they folded anyway. Mm. But it put the it put the idea in my mind, and I remember going out there and talking to a couple of directors, and they gave me some good advice. And um, long story short, I heard that there was a uh, a film course available at the School of Fine Arts in Ireland in Christchurch. Applied for that, didn't get in. And then two days before the term started, they sent me a note saying, someone's dropped out, are you still interested? I said, yes, hopped on a plane and went down there and studied film for three years. And um, came away with a dip FA. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, queue years of unemployment and uh, <laughs> wandering in the wilderness and what yeah. do I do now? And yeah, I was just going to uh, say, what does that diploma and fuck all do for you? But uh, well, just that. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> it's nothing and everything, really. Uh, everything in the sense that I was in a place with a group of people who didn't want to be doing anything else. Yeah. Uh, and I was routinely, you know, every day seeing films by great filmmakers I think that was the greatest value of it, actually. Not yeah. the, not so much the practical instruction, which was just actually what quite lacking. To but man, I discovered yeah, Soviet cinema, British yeah. cinema, yeah. French cinema, German cinema, particularly German cinema, which mm. you know the, the the love of that has never left me. You know, I was introduced to Werner Herzog and um, and Wim Wenders, who continue to be you know great shining mm. lights for me. All these years later, they they're still going and are still mm. inspirations. Um, you know, the proudest moment of my professional life was um, having my film Last Dogs of Winter selected for Toronto and I ended up in the same group of 16 filmmakers that also included Wim Wenders and wow. um, and Werner Herzog. I didn't get to meet them, yeah, yeah, but, but you're we in were in the, the same hotel yeah, yeah. and I was in the same Com event. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, that, that, was, that was incredible that, you know, if I do nothing else, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty happy with that, so... Uh, yeah, as to what you do with your life and, and your professional mm. um, potential, well, that's 
that continues to be a problem <laughs> for everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, at the time, I mean, what I did was I, I, I got a, um, you know, a menial full-time job, which yeah. supported me, and then I would, I would continue my filmmaking um, in my spare hours. And so do you move straight back to Wellington? Uh, yes. And yeah, yeah. so this has been your home for forever, pretty much? Pretty much, Apart yeah. from those first couple of years and then a couple of ways, years away. Yeah, yeah, three years in Christchurch. Um, I've never really been interested in living anywhere else. Yeah. Um, I've worked in Auckland a few times, yeah. which has just reinforced my desire not to live there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the the, op- the option is, is, well, was, I don't think it's realistic now, is move away entirely, go go mm. elsewhere, but mm. go where and do what? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I like making films. I don't like kind of sitting around hoping to make films so yeah. that tends to drive every choice I make yeah and so you know I'm, I'm, I'm working in a, in a warehouse making minimum wage but in my off hours I'm driving to the film unit at night um, hiring a little room and editing a film that I shot uh, using well at the time it was the Queen Elizabeth II Arts Council yeah yeah and I think Many filmmakers in New Zealand went the same route. Uh, they, they would get little grants and they'd make things. And mm. So that's what I did. I, you know, and I'd stumble through one film, two films. By the time I got to my fourth short drama, which was called Stalin Sickle, that's the first one I'd probably put my hand up to and say, yeah, yeah. That, that, that was a film I'm reasonably proud of. Uh, that got into some film festivals internationally, won some awards. And um, by then I had gone freelance whatever that means yeah yeah what it actually means in practice is that generally i've i've had another leg to stand on of some kind i was really lucky um to get a job as a film reviewer for the dominion mm. and a lot of people know me for that mm. um, and they assume that i i was reviewing films and then i started making them it's actually the other way around the other way around and yeah by the side of it <laughs> i mean that, that was actually a great job um particularly in the in the first few years when patrick ensor was the was the arts editor mm. Um, I think it, it was a great, um, well, there, there, there were some really good writers and I was proud to be part of that team. So what sort of era is this? Uh, we'd what be talking 1986. Yeah, to, say, 80s. Yeah, uh, 1986 is when I started. And uh, it, it, after, after Patrick left, I felt like it all went downhill a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I wasn't so And are you happy. doing everything from film festival to the big blockbusters and... Well, essentially, the job was to cover cover film, cover films. Yeah. yeah. So that included everything. Yeah, the film yeah. festival was actually just you know an annual oasis. Yes. A break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From all the tedium. Um, yeah. And uh, I did that for ten years, which is probably two or three years too long. But mm. you know, it was it was um, a source of income and hard to give up. Uh, but it got to the point where I just got sick of the sound of my own voice and hard to say the same thing or to, to find a different way to say yeah, yeah. essentially the same thing but I think the, the, the great the great error I think for any critic is when you start um, when you start talking about things that they should have done or could have done yeah yeah <laughs> rather than responding to what's there so when I when I actually caught myself doing that I thought nah it's time to it's time, time to, to get out yeah and time to get out and what do this stuff yourself again like you know you've got you're a you don't have to be a filmmaker to be a film reviewer mm-hmm. 
maybe you've got different thoughts on that than other people because you already were one and you went back to being one but you know I, I, I always have that charge level at me mm-hmm. you know, when are you going to make an album you write about albums you haven't made an album so you can't comment which is silly mm. um, I have some small musical background um, which probably isn't at all <laughs> worth mm. bringing up in terms of my writing but at least I do know what it's like to be on a stage I do know what it's like to try and you know mm-hmm. put across entertainment for people so I do sort of you know I am sympathetic to a person having an off night or, well, it's, the, or it's, the exhilaration of going well and, but yeah so what are you what are your thoughts on well the idea that that, that um, critics have to be one thing or another it's a close cousin to the idea that you know um, those who can do and those mm, who can't mm. teach it's yeah, simply yeah. not true yeah it's just a generalization yeah, um, it's something people say to make themselves feel feel good, yeah. have, or like they've got an upper hand in a conversation when they essentially yeah, don't. The, I mean, the fact is, good is good, and yeah. um, you know, uh, teaching is a different activity to to making. It, yeah. it requires different interpersonal skills, and you know, it, it, it it's just different. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you you can do both. Um, but it comes down to how you feel when you're doing it. I, I got to a point in reviewing films where I simply wasn't happy. Yeah. And I, I just, um, I felt like it was getting in the way. It was creating a buzz in my head. Yeah. And I wanted to get on and, and do stuff. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I, I, I sort of ha- had been getting on and doing was, was Forgotten Silver, which is probably a real high point mm. in, in, in my career. And um, maybe that's the one they'll scratch on my tombstone. I don't know. I wouldn't mind. Um, except I have to share the space with uh, <laughs> with with Peter. Which is not a bad person to share. Well, maybe he hogs the limelight now, but I was going to say, it's not a bad person to share the um, limelight with in terms of people's opinion of him as a technical filmmaker. You know, like he, he's he's well regarded. Well, look, um, Forgotten Silver wouldn't have happened without Peter. That's, yeah. that's the long and the short of it. Yeah. And it certainly wouldn't have been as good. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, so like, yeah, it's not like he's stealing your thunder and scabbing it. He's he's no, 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 not at got all. Got a huge hand in it. No, he, he he just shared my enthusiasm for the project. I yeah. mean, um, and so t- let's go back a couple of steps to how you and he first connect. Is it's not just over this film. Oh, I met Peter um, uh, in a kind of accidental way. I, I was working as a assistant director. Um, which sounds quite grand, doesn't it? Essentially a production <laughs> assistant yeah. on um, a TV series called Wurzel Gummidge Down Under, uh-huh. which featured John Pertwee yes. as, a, as a scarecrow running around. Yeah. And Anyway, for whatever reason, um, the production was brought to New Zealand, transplanted mm. wholesale down under. And um, this, this show, it was filmed over uh, 12 weeks of a winter mm. in 1986. I think it was, yeah, 1986, and um, so probably about six or seven weeks in, and the props man, Paul Delu, I think his name was, he came up to me and said, oh, there's there's a guy turning up today, you might like to meet him, and I said, oh, yeah, why? And he said, oh, he's really into film like you. I said, oh, good. Um, his name's Peter. And I said, well, what's he going to be doing? Uh, well, he he's very clever. Said, okay. And he he um he can do these little special effects. Mm. And so what Peter was going to be doing that day was um, setting some little voodoo dolls on fire, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And yeah. and Paul Delu, the props man, had met him at a party just randomly. Mm. And when Peter found out that Paul Delu worked as a props man on real films, he wanted <laughs> He sort of 
Well, he, he just, you know, got engaged in conversation and then showed him his scrapbooks. Peter kept all these scrapbooks of mm. everything he'd ever done. And they were pretty impressive when you looked at them because mm. in person he was very unimpressive. Mm. You know, he had a terrible stutter in those days and he, he, he dressed horribly. So your first impression <laughs> of him was always very negative. Yeah. Um, but then you get to talking to him and... Uh, well, I, I don't know, he seemed like a bit of a fantasist, actually, and I yeah. thought, hmm. But he um, offered to show me this film he'd been working on, and which wasn't easy, you know, like because it was in 16mm, and so we had to arrange a, uh, a flatbed editor to watch it on, and which I did, and so we went out to the film unit and laced up the film and started watching it, and I knew within a couple of minutes that I was looking at something pretty extraordinary. Hmm. And so my whole impression of him just changed instantly and by the time we'd got to the end of um of, of watching this stuff i thought this this guy is something else yeah and what i was looking at was um essentially a rough cut very very rough unfinished of what became bad taste right uh, it would be another two years before it was finished mm, but mm. you know it was evident that peter was a real um, talent and um, i did my best to help him uh, from that point, uh, which which took the form of introducing him to people I knew. I introduced him to Fran Walsh, and uh, that association... Um, it's gone okay. Uh, it's sort of gone, <laughs> gone okay. Well, um, Fran's partner at the time was Stephen Sinclair, who's yeah. a, a really good writer. Yes. And they immediately hooked up, yeah. um, the three of them, and started brainstorming what became Brain Dead. Yeah. And that would be a, a few years before that mm, happened. Mm. Uh, Meet the Feebles came out of that. So it, it, it you know, that a was a very important... collaboration very quickly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also um, encouraged him to approach the Film Commission. He said, oh, well, I've, I've written them a couple of letters. I, I've never heard back from them. I mm. said, well, you've, you've actually got to go in there with what you've shown me and blah, 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 and, which he did. Mm. And he was um, very, very fortunate to go in at the time when Jim Booth was the executive director and Jim I think must have taken one look and thought exactly what I was thinking mm. which was this guy's not like other people yeah <laughs> there's something here and Jim also would have had the political smarts to realize that if he took that work in front of his board that they'd throw them all out of the room um, and so using his powers as executive director he was able to um, essentially drip feed Peter a little bit of money to keep bad taste happening mm. and um, uh, well the rest is history um, bad taste got made um, it sure as hell alienated um, one sector of the industry <laughs> yeah, yeah. as much as it delighted the other yeah, half yeah. and what it was was financially successful and, yeah. and that's ultimately the, the greatest seal of approval yes. in, these, in these days or those days too um, and it, it sort of got him the backing for Meet the Feebles, and uh, Brain Dead wasn't too shabby either. Yeah. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Peter where he said, you know, it sort of seems to take three films to, to break through, three films in a row to be successful, mm. and it's, after that you can kind of get somewhere. I remember thinking, oh, Lord, three films. <laughs> it's hard enough well, just to make one. That used to be very much the case with music. Three albums was about mm. the... And people actually worked it that way. I mean, you know, yeah. who who really cares about Elton John's first couple of albums and look how successful he's been. Mm -hmm. You know, he wouldn't happen in today's climate. No one would wait around for that. Well, I, I, album. I, I don't really believe in formulas or numbers. No, I, no, no. I, I, think, I think what it is, 
and this this is hard news for anyone creative to hear, but <laughs> yeah. um, some people have that extra X factor or that something special, yeah. whatever it is, and and it can be a matter of timing as much as anything else. Absolutely. But some people kind of have that bone, and other people don't. Mm. And um, so, what you're describing is that Peter Jackson had that, had it, and, and, and has probably it. still has yes, it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've long since reconciled myself to the fact that I don't. Um, yeah. Clearly, I'm in some kind of margin, and uh, <laughs> I have to take <laughs> what I can. Um, because I, I guess I've had enough time to figure that out or, or prove it or not. And, mm. and I, I, I think it's true. I, I do find myself attracted to the margins quite often, mm. which puzzles me, because I reckon in many ways my taste is actually quite um, conventional. You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, in, in in many things, I I always find myself attracted to things that aren't quite mm. the same. So the Candyman was surely a, a good success. Um, well, a success in terms of eyeballs, but not a financial yeah, right. success. Right. And Candyman, ironically, you know, it's like art follows life or life follows art. Uh, we we were ripped off rotten by you know we thought we'd. Um, we'd struck it great we got this US mm. distributor mm. and he turned out to be you know like the most conventionally stereotypically scum of the right. earth rip off artist imaginable mm. mm-hmm. so never really had a penny back from that wow. film and uh, a good business card or in theory it should be a good business card but then a film should be much more than a successful <laughs> film should be much more than just that right well I think I think Candyman also was right on the cusp of the era we're in now, which is where films, particularly documentary films, just don't make money. No, they just they get don't. kudos, but what's that? Well, you're lucky to get <laughs> if, kudos. If you but, get it, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it it, it premiered at, at a really good um, festival. Mm. It got um, a national US distributor. And what good did it do us? And yet I know that it was um, one of the most watched films on, on Netflix. Uh, or documentary films mm. for a long time so thousands and thousands of people have seen it yeah. um, but it hasn't actually That's a bit like, been much use it's a bit like Spotify lessons <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can we go back to Forgotten Silver just uh-huh. to carry on with that and Peter and, and, and a sideline thing I wanted to ask you was um, were you reviewing his films did you do you have yeah, I did. reviewing those those ones you mentioned? So I did actually. Um, you know, I, I I can't remember exactly, but I think I did. Um, Perhaps brain dead or well, a certainly at least yeah, I, got bad taste. I, I'm sure I reviewed um, bad taste. Well, <laughs> what I remember um, saying about it was uh, I I likened it to um, Buster Keaton, and I did yeah, that right. for a reason because I know. Well, I knew that, that that Peter really loves Buster Keaton. Right, yeah. And I found aspects of the physical slapstick in the film, you know, justified that comparison. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Bill Gosling. And that he was doing his effects thing like, like yeah. Buster was doing the stunts. Like, the yeah, music, yeah, yeah. And he was appearing in the film and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. It's, yeah. just, it's a trivial thing, but kind of funny in hindsight. Um, when the film premiered at the, uh, at the New Zealand Film Festival... Um, Bill Gosden, the, 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 the programme director, asked me to write the, um, the blurb. So I duly did. And the one thing he changed, yeah. he, he didn't like the comparison to Keaton. And right. He scaled it back to Laurel and Hardy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that's fair enough, yeah. sort of. But, 
but I, I, I felt like it was more more Keaton. But yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so so you've made this connection with Peter, and you've then connected him to a couple of really important uh, collaborators, and helped through those sort of connections and ideas. Helped him on a little bit, a little little bit, bit. yeah, a little bit. I think I think Peter's. uh, You've had a hand in his uh, career already at that point. So how do you guys, how do you guys arrive at working together on Forgotten Silver? Uh, Well, we we would um, talk a lot, you know, like just just just, sharing ideas, just basically brainstorming and whatever, and um, and uh, so it it came to pass that there was uh, an idea that had been in my head for some time and the idea was as as you see in forgotten silver uh, the story or the life of a filmmaker told through his films and you know recollections and the whole thing is not a hoax such an ugly word but yeah. but it's it's essentially it's a mockumentary fiction. the word didn't exist then yeah, i didn't yeah, uh, yeah. you know i had in mind models like um uh, Zalig, yeah, Woody yeah, Allen, yes, um, yeah. and Spinal Tap. Those, yeah. those were the two big ones in my yeah. head. And I remember talking to Peter about it one day, and he goes, "That's fantastic! You know, we should do it." Mm. <laughs> and uh, I was very happy about that because there's something about Peter, a kind of can-do attitude. It just it just mm. sort of fills you up with the notion that yes, we can do the impossible. Mm. And this was an impossible project. It really was. And um, it didn't take long trying to shop it around to local broadcasters to, to sort of hit the brick wall almost instantly, you know. Yes. The, the Department of Film Prevention was in full swing. And um, uh, either they just didn't get it or, or they, they were kind of obsessing over, you know, how would you do it? Well, that's yeah. our business, you know. <laughs> how about just letting us have a go? Well, they wouldn't and they didn't. And so it, it sort of sat for two or three years. And um, during that time, I'd just play with it. I'd, I'd bring out ideas and you know, dream up little vignettes and things and mm. call up Peter and he'd sort of chip in and um, he came up with, I think, the Rosetta Stone for the whole thing. I, I would say most of the ideas in the film are mine, but none of them were untouched by him. Uh, but he did come up with, I think, a really key structural idea, which was the notion that we, as contemporary explorers, would hack our way into the virgin bush mm. and find a lost city. Mm-hmm. And... I thought, wow, that that's an incredible notion, incredible metaphor, and you know, and and it did actually become the key to the whole thing of, yes. of how to open up that that story, um, and that's Pete's genius, I think. Um, so, yeah, we just um, it just sat and grew and mm. grew, and uh, and then one day, I was um, looking through um, the trades. <laughs> There was only one in New Zealand mm, um, mm. Uh, on film magazine, mm, mm. and I saw that uh, Television New Zealand and uh, New Zealand on Air had put out a um, what do you call it a tender or whatever, and they they wanted ideas for uh, a mooted seven-part series of one-off dramas, and and I thought, oh, okay, this might be good. Uh, they wanted contemporary dramas. So I rang up Peter and he said, oh, yeah, perfect. We'll, we'll send them a, a period documentary. Mm. <laughs> and I think that's what did it. Mm. I, think, I think they had to sit down and look at something like 170 proposals, half of which were about marital breakdowns. And um, I think 
that gets very boring when you when you're mm. reading lots of stuff. So out of that pile, this thing must have stuck out like a sore thumb, and yeah. it's, its very difference must have been an asset. Um, the fact that Peter was involved was a huge asset. You know, of let's course. be honest. Um, he'd come off. He was a um, name. He was a name New Zealand filmmaker by then. You know. Well, he'd done Heavenly Creatures. Yes. Um, you know. His, his reputation had done a 180 mm. degree turn mm. um, so he was the 800 pound gorilla and they yeah. wanted him badly and um, I felt a bit strange about that um, I'll admit but yeah. you know I wanted this film to happen because by then uh, the story and the main character had become so real to me mm. you know I was uh, I was dreaming him at night and, and I just wanted to make this thing happen and uh yeah, the timing was awkward, I have to say. Well, New Zealand only did come back and they said, yeah, we really like this and they wanted to move forward with it, but there was no script. It was just a bunch of loose ideas and we didn't have long to do it. Um, so I remember that crazy time. Mm. And Peter and Fran were in the midst of preparing for the Frighteners, so it was really, really awkward. Yeah, right. So basically I was writing all day long, just churning out the pages, and then every night I'd go around to their place and we'd spend two or three hours, and they'd go over my pages. And um, when I say go over, I mean really, really go over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'd take the rewrites back home, and I'd rewrite the rewrites. And this went on for a month, just solid writing. And at the end of that, we had a pretty good script, I think, and so we put that in. And we made, you know, we jumped out of the shortlist and into the, you know, one of the definites. Mm. And on it went. Uh, there were a few other hiccups on the road um, to do with, with Peter's availability. That, mm, that became mm. a real problem, um, which we had to get around. Um, you know, the, the, the worst part of that was when he was shooting his leg of the film and he was officially supposed to be in pre-production on The Frighteners. Right, uh, yeah. And then the, uh, the Universal execs were coming out to visit oh, right. and we had to try and... <laughs> do everything to keep them away. <laughs> I remember that got really awkward. Wow. So, um, but he, he was really happy actually, I think, uh, particularly shooting the, the biblical sequences. Mm. And I wrote that up as, um, I think, four or five pages of just closely described action. And he shot it really faithfully. Yeah. But he was, he was doing what he does best, which is just taking large groups of people and articulating action almost instantly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anyone else who could do this, except maybe Spielberg or a couple of other people. Like, he'd take just raw extras who'd never done anything, yeah. and within an hour or two, suddenly you're watching this biblical mm, <laughs> scene take mm. place with battles. And Kubrick must have been able to do it with those <laughs> battle scenes he had. I don't think so. I don't think Kubrick's no. process was at His all the same. different, yeah. Yeah, Peter's just got, I think, a really good touch, mm. and... Um, uh, yeah, it was uh, actually the best stuff. It didn't even make the cut. We were recreating aspects of the Spanish Civil War, and um, he directed some stuff that was shockingly <laughs> kind of. Yeah. It looked like real footage from the real Spanish well, Civil War. I was going to say, I mean, this might 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 be a bit simple, but um, when the couple of times I've watched it, I, and I haven't watched it for a long time, and I and I, I should watch it again. Um, but I, I feel like for a mockumentary, to use that term, because that's essentially what it is, the uh, sort of genre that it falls under now, when people discover it, it just feels so sincere. The filmmaking is so sincere behind it. I don't, mm. I don't always feel that way about mockumentaries now. 
I don't know. Well, it was sincere. Um, and, and, you know, when people started talking hoaxes and whatever, mm. I, that, that actually hurt me. But um, it, it's not the sincerity. It's it, it's the belief in the character. Because for me, that was... Well, that kind of is the sincerity in yeah, a way. Yeah, well, uh, that was the first time where I'd really finally locked into what you should be doing in a drama, which yeah. is... It, it, it's the character that dictates the story, and that's how that story evolved. Um, I, I came to know that character so well, and he was a synthesis of, of me and Peter, actually. Mm, mm. Um, uh, I, I, probably unconsciously, but, but that there it is. And um, just came to know him so well, I knew what he would do in any given circumstance, and then I could throw obstacles on his path, mm, and then mm. drama would happen. Mm. And... I think, you know, I work with a lot of uh, younger people, students who are interested in making films. A lot of them are interested in making mockumentaries, and I think all of them make the same basic mistake, which is it's not about fooling people. Yeah. It's about getting them engaged in a story and making them care. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, you know, if, if there was some sincerity, that's what was involved. Uh, Peter put it like this. He said, you know, it's, it's, it's about um, the drama. We need to make this dramatic, first and foremost. Mm. Um, he sure as hell cared about making it look real too. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. More than I did. Yeah. You know, like, uh, uh, in fact, that's the one thing we clashed over was um, at what point do you stop being funny and just mm. be realistic? Mm. And so we argued over over the tone. And I think where we ended up was about right. Mm. Not mm. not too not too dry, but, you know, not, not ha, ha, ha. Yeah, yeah. Um, the argument I lost, and I wish I hadn't lost it, was the credits. And what I wanted to do was make the credits um, straightforward and realistic. You know, give the real, honest credits. Yeah. And Peter argued that no, we should fake those as well. Right. And he was the producer. Yeah. So he carried the day, and I regret that because if there's a note of insincerity in the whole thing. That's where it's, it is. Yeah, yeah. And I just felt as a, as a, as a mark of respect to the actors who'd taken part that they should be credited for what they actually did rather mm, than, mm. you know, credited as, as armament experts and yeah, yeah. such like. But anyway, I, I lost that argument. I wish I hadn't. So so what was the response like at the time? I mean, because I, I, I didn't see it until a few years after. And I, mean, I, I was sort of, you've, you've brought up this word a couple of times, hoax, and how that sort of, smarts and I can see mm. why and how but well, were the, people really offend like people don't like being tricked so that's why hoax is a harsh word anyway like people don't like being you know people people no one wants to be to have someone else make them feel dumb I think there's an element of of um, pain in Forgotten Silver it's the pain of the struggling artist which I know mm. a lot about <laughs> and uh, particularly in a in a, a kind of puritanical Philistine culture, which mm. I think we have, and so I was consciously trying to finger that in the film. I was consciously poking that and going, "Look, if you want heroes, then you've got to deserve them." And I think that's what annoyed people because we gave them a hero, mm. and then they found out he wasn't real. Wasn't real. But it was yeah. like they just wanted to swing in behind this hero and wave the flag and go, mm. "Yeah, we're the greatest," which I, th- I think is a little bit of an ugly thing, actually. Yes. Um, but you know, if you deserve the, those heroes, if if um, if you actually nurture them and let them make mistakes and grow and do something, well, that's a common New Zealand trait, though, isn't it? Looking for that kind of, and, and we never do that. Like we we have these heroes, and when they make a mistake, 
We tear them down. We tear them down and yeah. dump them, you know. Which like, is really, really boorish. And you see it on the sporting field as well, yeah. you know. Like, well, look at like what happens if Lord makes a shitty second album. Mm. You know, everyone's going to go, oh, she's awful, one hit wonder, and not care mm. about, you know. Well, it's not just a New Zealand thing, I suppose. No, it's not. <laughs> it's but it's, we, it's we a human see, thing, but, but we tend to do it We a seem bit. to excel at it. Yeah, I guess because we're a little, a little country and we like yes. to think we box above our weight, you know, yeah. and we do. It's true, yeah, we sure. do. Of course. And I was actually trying to show that. In Forgotten Silver by, um, I mean, yeah, sure, it's it's fiction, but the fiction's actually built on a lot of truth. Yes. A lot of the um, things that are in it are, are very much based on real things. Yeah. And um, I was trying to show that, you know, that, that we do have, like Richard Pierce for a start, mm, just mm, for a start, but, mm. but other, other things as well. And um, what happened was uh, people just got, wildly pissed off and they took it personally yeah and they started hitting out at the broadcaster first and foremost mm. you know and we there were all these letters along the lines of how can i ever trust tv and z news again <laughs> um and it went all the way up to you know peter jackson and costa botes ought to be shot um <laughs> a few ugly so um you know messages on my phone and and such like uh and then other people took it in, in good humor i think mm-hmm. um the people that it annoyed the most, uh, I, I think, just had very naive notions of what television is and what it ought to be. and um, just, yeah. The most annoying thing to me was, oh, your film is, is worthless because it isn't it's true. Because it's not real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you've, hmm. Not just you've offended us, but we're going to offend you around your work. In return, we're going to tell you that it's Well, the idea that fiction worthy. is worthless <laughs> yes. is, is just damn silly. Or that, or that documentary or film has to be any one particular thing, that it mm, can't mm. blur lines around it, which, which, of course, now it can and does so much. But frankly, the thing that, uh, you know, I, I just still can't get over all these years later is how can you watch this thing and, and not realise it's a have. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not like you're actually trying to, like, pull the wool over people's eyes well, the whole way through. I mean, you, I guess that was the original intention, but very clear to me watching it. The intention was to intrigue people enough that they'd watch right. for the first few minutes, get and, them hooked. And then enjoy it and as, then, they, as it unfolds. <laughs> in the first quarter of an hour, we pile the bullshit mountain so high how can you possibly believe this, you know? Mm, and mm, and my, mm. my thought was, well, after that first 12 minutes or so, the penny will drop and then you can just get on and follow the story and mm. enjoy it knowing that it's almost certainly not true. But perhaps with a, um, a little bit of uncertainty, just a, a kind of hint of tension. Yes. Uh, and I had seen things like that. Um, there, was a, there was a film called Alternative 3, which played on uh, New Zealand television in oh, around about 1977, I think. And uh, that was a, a documentary, or purported to be, mm. very realistic. And I, I felt that tension, and I found it quite exquisite, quite delightful, right. because I, I just couldn't be sure. And as I watched it, as it went along, it, it became sillier and sillier, until finally, at about the 40-minute mark, you went, no, surely yeah, yeah. this must be a mock doc. Well, I didn't. They didn't call them that no, in those no. days, and yeah, we had yeah. no, no word for it. But, but that's what I felt. And um, you know, years later, that's what I sort of drew oh. on, thinking that's what I want to do here. I want people to, you know, watch it, follow it, 
not love been to, quite sure, but you know. Love to try and find that film to watch now. It's available. Yeah, it's well, been reissued on DVD. Wow. Alternative three. Cool. Mm. Um, so your, what's your, what ends up being your response to this? You you get a little bit bummed out at how it's treated in some sense, but your, I take it your stock is up in the world or at least your mm. belief in yourself as a filmmaker is such that you want to jump into the next full length project well, you know finally you had a film that a lot of people were sitting yeah, up and taking right. notice and, and it was being and that you're proud to have your yeah. name on I mean the previous one went pretty well too but not like this this mm, was like mm. everyone was talking about it for weeks yeah and, yeah because it was yeah that was a good feeling um, and uh, yeah I, I, I just wanted to get on and, and do the next thing um and uh, I proceeded to, to bugger up my career almost instantly, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I made a film called Saving Grace. Um, Which you're not fond of. No, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, but certainly audiences had very mixed response to it. I mean, it was a difficult mm. topic. Uh, it was based on the stage play by Duncan Sarkis, and Duncan um, wrote the screenplay as well. And... Um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say we really struggled. It was it was a, it was a very tricky, um, uh, well, controversial type of topic subject, and uh, basically it just it just didn't it didn't work. It, yeah. it, it just yeah we, for whatever reason, and, and I've thought about them a lot. <laughs> it, it just didn't click. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, my stock had gone up, and then it just plummeted. Right. And there were a few sort of political ructions to do with funding bodies as well. Yeah. And uh, uh, I found myself essentially shut out for years, and years. And um, because of that one film, I think so. Yeah. And ah, uh, um, oh, well, you know, you just dust yourself off and figure what, out what you're going to do next. And what is the process of dusting yourself off from something that is you know, a fa- essentially a failure. Well, I did. I did two things. Um, I um, looked for some television directing work, and uh, I was lucky. I um, at that time, um, what were they called Cloud Nine? Yeah. Were, um, formerly a British company. They oh, the set tribe. Up, yes, and and they set up here, so they needed directors, and there was mm. a lot of throughput. There was a lot mm. of work to do, and I got involved um, doing some directing for them. And yeah, a uh, mixed blessing. Mm. Um, I I loved working with the cast on the tribe. I, I had I had a lot of um, reservations about the scripts. I mm. I just felt they weren't fun enough. You know, like there seemed to be a lot of mooching around and melodramatic, romantic things. And we always had a lot more fun um, shooting more actiony type scenes and where the, where the kids were actually doing something. But what what was going on there was. The cast were extremely talented. Uh, many of them have gone on to do say, to other things. A few people, it was the yeah. start of the careers for people like yeah, Antonio so Prevalent and so it, forth. It, it, yeah, I mean, Antonio was just one of, of many. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Caleb Ross was another yeah. one, and um, uh, I could go on. I mean, there, was, there were a lot of them. They were, they were great to work with. And, of course, what we were all getting, um, and me, you know, crazily enough, after years of making films for the first time, I'm walking out on set every day for weeks on end, mm actually finally learning my craft right I, I think mm. I finally learned to direct properly <laughs> oddly enough on, mm. on this on this TV show and um, I couldn't help but cast my mind back to 
you know, how I'd worked previously and thought, well, you know, Saving Grace would have been a lot better <laughs> if I'd had this under my belt. What is it about TV work that, that does that for you? Is it the, is it the sort of deadline nature of, of it having to be episodic? Of like mm. the idea can't stretch out of frame. To, no, like the film can become indulgent. No, not so much because that that's really um, that's really more of a script thing. As mm. a director, um, your role is to take a bunch of pages and deliver a daily sh- schedule. You know, yeah. And and so for me, it was all about time and motion and, and um, efficiency. You know, how can I direct this many scenes a lot mm. uh, or a lot of minutes, as we, as we say in the day yeah and you know under under a great deal of pressure and i found i started thriving on it you know i've just found i was pretty good at it i mm. never had to work under such conditions before and and i started putting my mind to you know what can you do with the actors in, in order to realize this the script that's described and mm. so i learned how to block properly finally mm, mm. And partly trial and error, partly watching some of the other directors, um, talking to them as well. I, I got some really great um, advice, and then putting it into practice. And you know, today when I when I teach students, that's one of the primary things. And uh, you see that you can take relatively inexperienced people, and they can actually do a job um, mm. reasonably quickly once they learn the fundamentals. You know, there's an awful lot of faff talked about how to direct actors. And there's an awful lot of mm. deep spiritual malarkey, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it it's quite a pragmatic thing. Mm. I mean, yeah, you can you can get all touchy feely and incredibly esoteric about it, but in terms of a pragmatic challenge, it's about respect and about giving actors just the space and then letting them do it, and then you know modifying it in front of you. Um, that's one of the things that exasperates me is is, <laughs> is just some of the. Um, well, malarkey, I call it. Just, just, yeah, yeah. just a whole lot of pretentious tosh, basically. Uh, when in fact, it's just about letting people get on and do it. And you know, if they make mistakes, you as a director can can guide them. Well, what's a mistake anyway? They, they, their choices mm. might be different from what what mm, you want. Mm. But you know, that's your role is to, is to guide them into seeing or, or enacting the kind of vision that you have. But it's a two way street, and what they do in front of you will modify what you bring as well. And so I have a lifelong aversion to, you know, storyboard-driven films where, you know, you can't make movies with a pencil. You can't just draw it out and then get the marionettes out there like puppets to... Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to give them space and, and respect and time. So that's the kind of thing I learned. Um, so this is, late, this is late 90s and into the early 2000s? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, around about the same time... Um, Lord of the Rings happened. I was just going to say this yeah. is around when the announcement comes that. Yeah, I, I knew it was going to happen. I, I'd had prior notice because um, I was getting ready to go overseas to a film festival and I'm wondering how the hell I was going to be able to afford it when I get a phone call from Fran Walsh and, and she goes, um, Peter and I, um, we're flying to Hollywood and we've got this project that we need to pitch, but we haven't got time to read the book. Um, would you be able to? read the book and provide a synopsis you know like an accurate synopsis and I said sure and she told me some fabulous sum of money they were willing to pay me and I thought great that takes care of my airfares (laughs) (laughs) how long have I got oh 10 days that's not very long all right um and what's the book oh you'll see (laughs) and I don't know why but I I just had this 
instant mental image in my mind of a fell beast mm. and I thought oh my god it's Lord of the Rings I don't know why I thought that I just did mm. and anyway this package arrives in a brown paper bag I open it up and it's Lord of the Rings uh, all three books and I thought how am I going to do this in 10 days and so had you hmm. how familiar with them were you I had read it once before but yeah. it's in the past so and I'd read not, it and not as a filmmaker and not as someone working no, to a deadline to no to offer a pretty studied treatment on and I, I didn't have to worry about that but no. I couldn't help thinking <laughs> as I read it and I did 100 pages a day I think it's about 11, 1100 pages altogether yeah. for, for the three three books they're not not that long no um, and and so I, I prepared this detailed pricey which ran for 40 pages with, mm. with page references and whatever and all I could think as I was reading was how the hell are you going to do this um, how are they going to make it into a film then yeah, how are you going to realise this? Because yeah. at that point, you know, who, who knew? And, uh, yeah, it would be a few years before I found out. This was 1980, sorry, 1996. Yeah. And it would be 1999, when, uh, late 1999, when filming finally got underway. Yeah. In the interim, because I knew it was coming up, I approached Peter and said, you know what, um, it might be interesting to document I had no idea. Mm. I just imagined I would like a one-hour doco or something. Yeah. And uh, it would be a whole year of haggling with New Line before we finally hammered out what um, would be done or what should be done, what could be done. And they never left it alone from that moment on. They kept changing their minds. They drove me nuts. Mm. So I decided I'd drive them nuts. And so I did the thing that I do. <laughs> which is I go into persistence mode yeah um, and uh, yeah I just stuck it out for five years and did what I did <laughs> um, by which time they'd brought in another team mm. who I think um, it was beautiful really I mean it was it was it was awful and beautiful um, awful in that they brought in another team and suddenly I was elbowed sideways and mm. all the work I'd done for two and a half years to that point was suddenly on the shelf and mm. And worse, all the work I'd done up to that point was suddenly being given to the, this other crowd. Yeah. Um, and you see a lot of it in um, in the extended editions. So um, you know, I had, I had very mixed feelings. I was I was kind of resentful and, and bitter about that. But I had to just you know swallow it and um, uh, and I wanted to finish what I started. And the other thing was they'd already paid me. Yeah. It yeah. was a huge amount of money. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> I didn't come cheap. Yeah. And. Uh, I think at that point, uh, I felt like, well, should I just stop? I've got their money. Yeah. Um, and for the only time in the entire project, I went to Peter and asked his advice and said, well, what do you want me to do? You know, carry on or stop? And his advice was, um, well, if you carry on, no matter what happens, that material will exist. It'll be archival if nothing mm. else. Mm. And that was good enough for me. And um, so I just carried on. And the beautiful part of it was, the other team, and there were something like 30 of them in the end, as opposed to me and Jason Stutter. Jason yeah. was editing, and yeah. I was out there shooting. Um, oh, Hayley was out there, um, Hayley French, she was, she was out there shooting yeah. as well in the field. Um, we got left alone. We didn't mm. have to get all the emails from the studio anymore and all that mm, stuff, mm. all this noise, a lot of pointless noise, a lot of it too. Um, so we just, just got on and did what by then had turned into a reasonably coherent plan, which was take everything we'd shot, 
hours and hours and hours of it, like, you know, it was about a thousand hours in the finish, and actually turn it into an illuminating, free-flow um, uh, kind of narrative, which followed the story of the films. Yeah. And the original idea was to make one feature-length film. Well, that yeah. went out the window. I thought, no, blow it. One for each. Let's and do one for yeah. each. Let's make a that's trilogy about a trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, so uh, that's what I remember sitting down to watch, and I watched maybe not quite all of it at the end, but a mm. lot. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I haven't actually ever made it through the original film trilogy. I watched mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. two parts and never, never, never bothered with the third mm-hmm. one. Um, but your doco footage was... was and I don't know, but I also remember around the same time, I remember having no interest at all in the Matrix uh, trilogy or whatever it went up to at the end with the other bits, but I remember watching a documentary about the Matrix and finding that absolutely fascinating, mm. you know, just the filmmaking process and just going like the... Yeah, well, it can be. Um, you know, my model was um, a documentary I'd seen about the making of Star Wars. You know, this is back in 1978, yeah, 79. Yeah. I remember the sequence where... The, um, the sound of the lightsaber was explained. Mm, and it mm. was as simple as the guy just showing you. Mm. And I thought, that's what I want to do. So I think my model for documentary, um, quite consciously now, is rooted in the 1970s. Yeah, right. What um, about the um, Apocalypse Now one? Because that was a big that, one That's much me. later and a much more sophisticated yeah. and, and quite deep and interesting piece. But um, That was probably the one for me, like, just yeah. as, a, you know, as a viewer, like uh, probably the, yeah, the very, single very good. documentary um, that made me go, it's wow. Hearts of Darkness, that's yeah, cool. That's yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a terrific documentary, but I had a different aim because I thought, well, this is going to be largely for fans yeah. who... Um, really obsessives obsessives yeah and um, you know they're going to get all the stuff about um, Peter I mean the, what 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 the studio pushed was the idea of the um, you know the, the, the genius creator who goes mm. on this journey and mm. creates this film and that's true mm. but um, not that interesting <laughs> in my yeah, yeah. in my view yeah. um, I I I guess I wanted to have more of an observational feet on the ground. You're out there mm. with the grunts, you know, on the front this lines. This is how they did it. This and this is how, is how they shot. did it. Yeah. And there are heaps of them, and some of them are really obsessed. You know, the the, the key one, mm. I think the one that sort of stood in for everyone, were the two guys who sat inside a plastic tent and clipped together five yes. and a half million rings to make yeah. chainmail, and slowly went mad. Yeah. Um, because I saw them at the beginning and I saw them at the end and I just thought, there's the metaphor, you know. Yeah, yeah, these yeah. are the lords of the rings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just clipping these little plastic rings together. A time, you know, yeah. five and a half million rings. I mean, come on. Uh, that, that, I thought that was just really interesting. Mm. But I just kept trying to find these little nuggets wherever I could find them. And um, in the end, we documented pretty much every aspect and uh, what Jason edited together were three feature films where I don't think there's any moment of repetition in it. Mm, they're, they're, mm. It's always moving on to something mm. else. But basically they follow the, um, the story yeah, trajectory. Yeah, it's very linear. And, but the, the, um, I guess maybe it's the, reason, the other reason I connected with that Matrix one too is those films, you know, like the reliance on green screen and so mm-hmm. forth, which obviously is just about every Hollywood blockbuster film now, but... That was sort of the start of an era of it, and so mm. seeing that stuff get shot, and also seeing the field footage, like mm-hmm. the 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 non green screen, the real mm. footage in your doco, is very interesting. Making those comparisons between yeah, well, um, I, I quickly cottoned on that that they were shooting um, uh, video 
uh, you know, everything they shot out in the field, yeah. there would be a video copy of it. Yes. And so I made sure that I had access to that. Yeah. So we were able to cut in between yes. what the original camera was seeing mm. and what the final shots would look like. Mm, mm. I, I'm interested in that. You yeah, know, I yeah, like seeing yeah. before and afters. Yeah, exactly. And so I guess that was that was the, the thing that drove most things. It was like, well, what am I interested in? Mm. And I mean, that's what any filmmaker does, isn't it? You think, yeah. well, I'm kind of interested in this. You don't know yeah. what, what other people are going to be interested in, but that's you just follow your nose and see mm. where it goes. It was very confusing the first few months, I have to say. Um, very confusing. And apart from anything else, um, I'm running around with a camera in my hand, which I hadn't done in years. You know, So I'm having to get used to actually operating a camera. Mm. And I also found it quite um, odd that you know, in a crew a thousand strong... I'm the only guy there who's not there to make the movie, mm. um, as mm. a few crew members pointed out to me. Um, and there's a kind of inbuilt aversion that New Zealanders have to media. And so I was kind of seen as the media. Mm, or, mm. And it took a while to, to break through that. It took a long time, actually. Well, you're the fly on the wall in that yeah, environment. Yeah. But you had to be you had to be kind of respectful and you know not not to get into people's faces too much yeah. and just know when to push and so uh, yeah it was it, it could be quite tense it could be quite walking on eggshells mm. and I, I don't I wouldn't want to even go back into that space actually I'd had more than enough of it by the end well your thousand hours that you would have mm. done isn't that dissimilar to the <laughs> five billion plastic rings no you it, was know? A, it was a bit like that because you're just chipping away <laughs> yeah um but doing the reverse yeah know, i had the know. uh i had the problem though those guys knew what they were doing they were part of a team mm, i had mm. the problem where the uh the studio didn't know what they wanted or kept changing their minds and they were driven by fear they were driven mm. by anxiety and so you're working with that all the time which was just awful mm. just awful mm. and um also i mean i knew what i was doing i knew what i'd signed uh, I didn't own anything. I had no stake in the finished product. Mm. So by the time I was done with that whole experience, I knew that I would never, ever want to do that again. You know, mm. A, I don't want to be just another fly on the wall on someone else's show. And B, I need to have um, some independent control and authorship mm. Or, mm. or ownership. And every film I've made since then, I've, I've actually had... Uh, or substantial or complete ownership of yeah. that's more important to me just so that you know if, if I'm making the film I need to be making the film yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I need to actually set the agenda here and yeah. why I'm doing it otherwise I'd rather not thanks in fact I came perilously close to just giving up filmmaking entirely because I, I got so bruised and battered by that whole thing and it will it will hurt forever the fact that you know after all that five years of effort um, where does it go Mm. Where does it get seen? What credit did I get? Mm. Um, you know, it would take years before before any anything finally percolated back to me. So um, yeah, so what happened was then was I, I just sort of thought, no, I can't work like this anymore. But what have I got? I've got some editing gear um, now. I've got I've got a couple of cameras. So I, I went off and... Um, a track record? That's sort of a track record, yeah. <laughs> well, you have, you know, like however you view it, you <laughs> yeah. have, like in, in terms of a, a CV. Of well, I was carrying around a model of filmmaking in my head, which was, oh, when you make a film, you've got to get funding and you've got to um, yeah. 
get all these people involved with you. On and then board you, first. Yeah, 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 yeah. And suddenly I'm sort of going, oh. And that, that model's actually starting to collapse already around this time. Yeah, yeah. And you're having we, your own realisation around it. Hmm. Um, so I heard of a guy called, I think his name's Phil Grabsky. He's a British filmmaker. And I haven't actually seen it, but I heard he went off to Afghanistan with a... Mm camera exactly like the one that I had mm. and he'd made a movie and I thought oh that's that's an interesting model why don't I try that so I did and I made um, struggle no more and that completely changed everything I had such a good time doing that uh, working with people that I really admired and respected um, now this is the film about the Windy City Strugglers yeah Windy yeah. City Strugglers I think you could fairly describe them as New Zealand's greatest unknown band yeah journeymen um, <laughs> journeymen um, you know a lot of individual talents and then something happens when they come together too you know yes. like you've got individual yeah. songwriters and voices and and musical voices but then they're their own thing but in, in terms of theme um, they all embody the, the theme of persistence mm-hmm of, of un, undimmed passion of, of, of doing about, it for the love of it about 20 years b- between albums it, <laughs> to begin with from the first to the second oh, I think oh, and then oh. they started to put something like that something yeah, like yeah. That. yeah. Um, but yeah the, the idea of doing something for the love of it and I thought that's really worth celebrating and uh, by the time I was done I'd, I'd started to review my thoughts about lots of things and I'd mm. realised oh, actually this that's what Forgotten Silver was about and, and <laughs> yeah uh, um, but I don't, I don't calculate topics. They just sort of drift by, and sometimes you reach out and you grab one. And I just found myself um, making film after film about that very thing. And sometimes, quite incidentally, like uh, straight after Struggle No More, uh, which went down a treat at the New Zealand Film yeah, Festival, yeah. and uh, the New Zealand Film Festival has turned out to be a real lifeline for me. You know, it's 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 a path. To audiences and yeah it's a reason to make something a reason to keep going mm. um, it's not a living but um, then I started looking for ways to not make that a problem you know mm. make that not a problem Mm-mm. so I got into um, teaching and that's become yeah that's, what I, gonna, that's what I was going to ask you was mm. when do you when do you make the decision to get into teaching and how does that come about um, so it's around the time of the after the Lord of the Rings experience and around the time of making Struggle yeah, No More. Yeah, well, I, I, I was asked to um, go t- into the New Zealand Film and TV School and, you know, they, they have lots of people from the industry who, who sort of go in and spend a morning or an afternoon yeah. or whatever. And I, 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 I taught a little module in, um, in story development. Because mm. I remember that. you were teaching there when I met you. I remember yeah, you, yeah. yeah. Well, um, it, 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 was, it was sort of an off-the-cuff thing and... and um, I would go in there for uh, just you know two or three mornings basically, and, and and just talk about different approaches to developing ideas and and teasing them out into stories, because that's something I'm really interested in. And so teaching it kind of mm. makes you review what you think you yes. know. And, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I enjoyed that. And um, a couple of years later, uh, Victoria University approached me and said, "Would you be interested in teaching um, a paper in um, drama production?" I didn't even know what the hell that meant, but when I looked at it, I thought, yeah, I really would be interested, and so I applied for that and got it, and um, I did that from 2010 till this year. This is actually the last year I'm doing it, so mm. seven years, and wow, you know, 
in that course, the students have to um, write, direct, produce uh, four short films, which is quite a substantial amount of stuff to do. Mm. And, and we've had some terrific work. And I'm glad to say this year, the final year I'm doing it, um, all four films that students make are fantastic. So it's it's um, it's a really great um, uh, high to be going out on, actually. Yeah. Uh, in the interim, um, I've also been working at Massey, uh, teaching script writing and documentary production. Um, and, and really those are the two things very close to my heart. And um, they've offered me an, uh, an expanded role, which I was really happy to accept because it, it gives me a, a lot more stability, really. I mean, I've had 35 years of, of freelance mm. existence. Mm. And um, it's pretty tough yeah. out there, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you just can't live like that no. all the time. It's too hard. No. Um, and uh, but you know, I'm I'm still persistent and passionate about making films. I'm working on two different documentary projects right now. I was going to say the films sort of keep coming out, like because Candyman is after the struggle no more, and there's been a hand a small handful since that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've done a couple of things. Probably Last Dogs of Winter is my yep. most successful film since um, Forgotten Silver, just in terms of you know international yeah yeah recognition response. and eyeballs yeah. Um, and uh, it just as a piece of work, it was a great life experience. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I look for now is mm-hmm. um, I, I try and find a personal connection to things. You know, why is this going to make my life better by making this film? Um, sometimes you don't know. Uh, I've been working on one thing now for about three years and just circling, circling, circling. And mm-hmm. finally it's, it's starting to turn into something. Um, and then, you know, someone else rings me up and says, oh, we're doing this. Would you be interested? And kind of thought about it I thought, yeah maybe and so I've done a little bit of shooting around that and suddenly that's taking off mm. you know people say where do you get your ideas I don't know they just they just turn up and mm. then you just decide whether you're going to do it or not I don't have to have um, a, a financial reason anymore that is so liberating yeah 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 like all I need to do is make a film um, <laughs> yeah and that's what I've always wanted so I make feel like a film I'm, that you want to make yeah yeah, that's what I've always wanted, whatever whatever it was. And it's simply become too damn hard now. If, yes. you, if you want to make a dramatic feature film with a, you know, even a reasonable budget, it's just gotten too damned hard. And, yeah. and there's no reward for it. No. You know, you're almost being set up to lose because you can make a great, great film and it won't be successful. And, and the way we value things, the way we judge things now, yeah. you just can't win. Um, and yet people do you know hats off to Taika yeah Waititi yeah Um, fantastic Uh, and he's done it not once but a couple of times yeah and I think because he's certainly got the passion um, he's got a lot of practice which I think people don't think about you know years and years and years at bats developing his voice yeah Um, and it's as a a performer too you know like he's got um all aspects of it mm. going on and those I mean you mentioned it with, with regard to a composer you've worked with you know he's got those long term relationships yep. too you yep. know like using the same using the Phoenix Foundation guys to score all See, of the, the thing films. is if you want to make good films you have to have audience experience yep. you actually have to have um, gone through it several yep. times Yeah. and I think the big problem not just in New Zealand but everywhere is 
there's this expectation that our geniuses will be ready-made, that they'll yes. just drop out of the sky <laughs> yeah. and land on their feet and yeah. they'll be ready to run straight away. And that's simply bullshit yeah, yeah you know, totally. it's, just, it's just not true you, you need to practice you need to make mistakes you need to make well, many mistakes that little bit that Elton John thing again like mm. you know if, if you want to consider him a genius of songwriting which I think it's fair enough to, to mm-hmm. say that at one point in his career mm-hmm. he was one of the absolute greats and mm-hmm. he had the sales to prove it to go back and listen to that very first album you can't spot it at all mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like you can't say listening to that is even a germ of an idea that is going no. to translate into the big thing. You can see no. it a little bit on his second album. There are a couple of good songs there. You can see something, but you still can't predict it. You know, like, and why would you be able to? No, any, any artist to be good has got to have an eye for the authentic and an insight into, or a way to see things that's a little bit different from everyone mm. else. But, boy, you need practice. <laughs> and practice means... Um, you know, making mistakes, and when you're not allowed to make mistakes, and I and I look at the current environment here, you know, that's supposed to be nurturing, facilitating filmmaking. Mm. And what I see is an awful lot of fear, an awful lot of anxiety, and an awful lot of pressure on young filmmakers who are barely taking baby steps, and are expected to act um, as if they're seasoned professionals. Mm. I mean, for heaven's sake, the making of short films—that's always been the engine room for New Zealand feature filmmaking. And now they're going, well, you know, before we'll consider you for, for, for short film funding, um, we want to know what your feature film idea is. I mean, that is just malarkey of the yeah. highest order. Yeah. You know, the fact is, it, 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 it's, it's public money, it's cultural funding, and the idea is it should stimulate and, and nurture and facilitate culture. Let people go out and stuff up. Let them go and make mistakes. Mm. Um, some of them won't. You know, sometimes the mistakes will be interesting. But out of that, people will grow and, and, and you'll get interesting filmmaking. Um, you'll get filmmaking that connects because people need uh, the experience of actually watching their, their own films with an audience. Mm, mm. Not just once, but two or three times. I mean, hell, I wouldn't put up my hand in my first three films. Um, <laughs> maybe there's something interesting in all three of them, I hope so, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but they sure as heck weren't, For you. <laughs> weren't fully realised. Yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. they, they all you know, miss the bar mark in some way or another. My first feature film, the same. But there are interesting things in it. There are signs mm. of, of of something, you know. So I guess that's not entirely gone as a as an ambition. Really, um, well I was gonna say to do more. Everything <laughs> everything you're saying around how films are made now and the model and the the, the, the setup to fail, that that alone tells me that you're probably unlikely to to look at fictional feature filmmaking again outside of you know the documentary stuff you mm. do but and then there's some dissatisfaction you've had with work but is it something that is sitting inside you thinking like you know I would like to oh, to do to do more fiction yeah yeah oh absolutely yeah and I have done actually I, I've worked with um, Zoe McIntosh over a number of films mm. and you know that's cross genres from documentaries like Lost yeah. in Wonderland yeah um, uh, but we, I edited um, the Deadly Ponies Gang. I had mm-hmm. a hand in the story sort of formation of that, mm-hmm. um, and we've done two short dramas. Those have been incredibly satisfying. Uh, yeah. The second of which hasn't emerged yet, but hopefully uh, it will. Mm. Um, but that that was a really interesting journey, and that um, yeah, I, I'm definitely interested in writing more fiction. In fact, I've got a script project which I'm sort of working on now mm. and um, doing some research for uh, I have no idea mm. how viable it is but I don't care because mm. uh, that's still an unrealised 
yeah, ambition, yeah. you know, and, and so it's still there. And what about a return to uh, film or cultural criticism in any way that's of any interest to you? I would imagine not. <laughs> like, not really. Um, I, you know, I there, mean, there's it's, not lo- it's not lucrative, but I wonder if, like, spiritually or philosophically it's of interest. I think of, like, Clive James just wrote a really, really good book about um, binge-watching TV. And, of mm-hmm. course, you know, like, one of the great things he did was TV criticism, and he hasn't really written about it for a long time. Yeah. But the, the, he's just trotted out this book about DVD box sets and binge-watching series, and he's, he's obviously still got it as a writer. Mm. Well, you know, never say never, but um, mm. probably not. Uh, mm. I, I, sometimes I do, like, a reflexive burp. I might do a little Facebook post. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. Where I say I've something. Some. Yeah, yeah. But uh, well, that, that is reviewing now. Yeah, whether we yeah. like it or not, and sometimes it's really effective and really great. I often have is... the, I often have the impulse to do that, and mm. then and then I go, ah, oh, no. Mm, you might grow more into that because that, you know, I'm feeling that too. That is that is reviewing now. That is what people look at. That mm. is what people want. It's sure as fuck what Facebook wants. <laughs> you know, they want they yeah. want anything approximating journalism they can get their hands yeah. on. <laughs> so the trouble is, it's it's here today and gone five minutes later. Of course it is. Um, and but that's not to yeah. say the thing you wrote for the paper or the paper's website hasn't gone straight away to more yeah. so than ever now. It's odd, you know. You run into people and they go, "Oh, yeah, you write you write for the paper, don't you?" And I go, "Yeah, twenty years ago." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's odd how it's stuck in their minds yeah totally I bet that's not the case with yeah. a lot of online stuff yeah I don't know I don't know you might know better than I would oh uh. I don't know about that I know I still get asked often about things that I haven't done for a long long mm. time I got you know people still say do you review stuff on the TV well the show that I did that for doesn't even exist mm. <laughs> you know but so they, they, they've got no interest in watching it Mm. clearly because I don't know that the, pro- the program's finished and I, I guess it's just nicer uh, I don't take it as yeah. anything wrong it's just a funny thing people say I still get asked or, so are you still talking about that on the radio yeah, and it's yeah. like that station doesn't exist anymore yeah. <laughs> so yeah I don't know what that is well I'm not sure but I suspect you're right most people now just get their um, um, information in very short quick doses of the net the, the thing is I think like the, the worry too is certainly with music and it's, I imagine it's happening with film I feel like it is is because of the whole sample and download culture people you know stream people can sample it before they bother reading someone else's take on it mm-hmm. they actually can jump into a film and watch 10 minutes and go this is not for me fuck it I'm done I'll get something else mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that's I don't know if that's wrong or not. I don't know. But that's what people could do. So they're doing it. Well, the, the problem's not... Not that. everyone, but, you know. And some people who stream and download films, they still read critiques first. They still read mm. reviews. Mm. Sure, there's that too. But I think a lot of people could just jump in and out of things. The question is how you jump in and out, you know. And uh, I, what concerns me is, is the expectation or the sense of entitlement mm. that you can just enjoy a piece of work without compensating the creator at all mm-hmm. and and that you know whoever's hosted that content can get very very wealthy selling advertising around <laughs> yeah, it yeah. but again the person who's or the the, per, the people who have created that content I really hate the word content mm-hmm. by the way um, have created that experience um, aren't, you know regarded as worthy of any kind of compensation and worse that you actually have 
large groups of um, individuals and um, institutions devoted to keeping it that way, devoted to destroying the notion of copyright. Um, you know, yeah. I, I, I just find that you know completely evil, really, and wrong. And it's not just self-interest. I, I just feel like it's morally mm. and ethically wrong. Mm. Um, and um, I think the argument, you know, the, well, the arguments that are put up to excuse this behaviour are just fundamentally misguided at best, and, mm. and you know, um, knowingly wrong at worst. Sort of amounts to large, largely it amounts to I can do this, so therefore I'm allowed. Well, the the, oh. the reason that's most often cited by um, people who pirate or legally download is um, it's inevitable. Mm, mm. In other words, they, that's they, what I mean. It, yeah. it exists, and people could do it, so I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it's I understand that it's it's a it's a human mm. sort of thing to just follow the follow the monkey over the cliff, but. Yeah. Um, my contempt is really for the, you know, the companies that, um, let's name names. Google is probably the prime offender, um, who knowingly and cynically exploit that. Yeah, yeah, mm. for sure. Well, you talked before about, um, you know, the loss of value attached to things. Yeah. And if you go, I, I think if you go around saying that you create content, you're already devaluing it yourself. You know, like yeah. you, we need to have these. There's no, I mean, I think. Maybe people like the idea that it's cross-platform, cross, you know, um, genre and all of that sort of thing, and so that you know you're not just a filmmaker; you're a filmmaker and a writer, and that there's a difference between being an editor and a director, and you can do those various components. But I, you know, and so I might write a review one day, then I might write a short story the next, but because I'm putting them in the same place, they're all content. I just don't really agree with that. I, I I think we should still be allowed to define what it is we do. Well, you know, I call myself a writer, a reviewer, or whatever. If people want to do it, and I, you know, right now we're doing a podcast, so I'm a podcaster or whatever. But I don't feel that it's all just content that exists on a website. I know that it is, but I don't like that label. Mm. Although I don't, I don't think that's the fundamental problem. Like maybe it's not a problem at all maybe it's actually a no, good maybe thing it's not. Yeah, um, yeah. I know that whatever you know the, 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 the difficulty is you know we're redefining mm. what products are we're redefining it but in doing so we're destroying any kind of um, market transaction well that's what I say it's a, but we're devaluing ourselves arguably if mm. we suddenly all become content providers if that's what we're referred to as well it, it, it depends what kind of transactions involved, mm. and I mean I don't think there's anything wrong with innovation or things changing, but when you lose any sense of respect between creators or makers and takers, mm. I think that's a good way to look at it: makers <laughs> and takers. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, uh, you know, when 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 you actually fundamentally change that relationship to someone making stuff, no idea where it's going and and people just grabbing it out of the ether and without any respect or um, any inclination at all to reward the person who made that product, mm. then I think you've got some trouble. And, and we don't have to sort of imagine it. You know, it's here now. It's, a, it's here, yeah, yeah. And um, what that does is it just crashes 
the economic value of all those pursuits and what it inevitably leads to is um, loss of professional opportunities mm. and, and when that happens um, yeah, shrinking the economy not growing it and um, you know then everyone suffers mm. uh, you know the public good is served by copyright that's why copyright was invented that it actually incentivizes creativity and incentivizes mm-hmm. innovation because you know people are selfish they want to see something for their, for their work right that stands mm. to reason that's logical um, and the counter arguments uh, you know they're akin to sort of saying gravity doesn't exist they yeah they're, they're purest bull if you didn't want if you didn't want people to watch a film for free you shouldn't have made it which is a really stupid argument <laughs> Well, they're yeah. all stupid, actually, yeah, yeah. Simon. When you when you when you when you look at all the reasons that are put forward for piracy or illegal file downloading, hmm. they are all stupid. Hmm. None of them actually hold water in any, any kind of logical sense. Um, Apart from the technology exists, so we're exploiting it, which is it's not a not a, just, not a not a argument or justification. That's just a description of what's happening. <laughs> Well, it's just saying the technology <laughs> enables my bad behaviour yeah. and I don't give a shit about anyone else. So yeah. I'm just going to do it because I can. Well, you know, yeah. uh, that, that's why we invented laws. That's why we, you know, if you want to keep a civilization intact, you have to have some kind of order. People have yeah. a philosophical idea that they are not hurting you as the filmmaker, but they are hurting you line or... You know, Warners or whoever the big person is behind you. Well, that that comes up too, and that's a related argument. But why yeah, yeah. Do, why do they want to hurt? No, I the, know. But the providers of the things that they love. I mean, it it makes they, no sense. They'll argue that they feel disillusioned, but they're actually making it a bigger problem. They're not actually countering it or helping. Well, it the way to the way to deal with that disillusion is go out and do it yourself. You know, mm. you don't like what's put in front of you. Don't or fi- or watch go it. and find something else that you don't like. Don't find something else that you do like. Um, yeah, it's 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 um, it's fundamentally flawed reasoning and um, a kind of almost psychotically selfish yeah. kind of reasoning. And that's what I'm most afraid of is that these tools that we've created, you know, for all their joy and wonder. <laughs> Yes. And all the possibilities they yes. offer. They're changing our heads. Well, this is... That's the... They're making us think in weird, perverse, wrong-headed ways. The, this is the black mirror culture that we mm. live in, right? That's mm-hmm. what that series is exploring. And, mm. and, and They take the joy out of actually engagement mm. with art. They, they you know, it, and, and I think a big part of that is you know you're doing wrong, actually, in some yeah. part of your soul. When you rip someone off, you know it's wrong, and that drives feelings of contempt and, and self-hatred, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, that, that comes out in all kinds of ugly ways, mm. which, mm. which, you know, you've only got to read a few um, online comments uh, to, 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 to see. I've read thousands. Yeah, yeah. I've read thousands. So, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you yeah. know, as an individual um, creator, what the hell can you do? I, I'm trying to consciously pick on subjects you know that 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 deal with um, themes of of kindness, of yeah. themes of um, I'm trying to bring insight. You know that that just just sort of clarify what for me um, might make life better. Well, I like um, that you you look at and if you look at say to to use a term 
oddball kind of figures mm. you don't do it to point and laugh at them but you want to look at how they existed and, and, and sort of celebrate they exist like I'm thinking the Candyman thing is a bit like that but also like mm-hmm. the Rob Moody you know um, sort of portrait yeah yeah you well, know it's, it's about saying that again it's a well, I find it a joy thing isn't you it? know Candyman is about a man who needs to get over horrible bitter feelings Mm. Of resentment and anger, he needs to get mm. over that in order to so it's find another, some happiness. It's another autobiographical. And, um, <laughs> well, you know, is what you're saying. Um, Act of kindness, a, a film I made last year, is about someone who's um, on a search, mm. uh, not not necessarily for redemption, but he he's on a search for something that will bring him some peace. Mm. You know, because of an event that occurred in the past and any you know so for whatever reason he's uneasy he's he's not at rest he's not he's not at peace and he, and he's he's on a quest to try and find that and, and I think increasingly um in my life anyway you know the 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 definition of happiness what what makes us happy what makes us unhappy it, it concerns me a lot and I think if if in a film you can actually bring some little insight you know it might yeah. not be your own it might be this, this your subjects yeah. That, that can just light up that light in the audience and make them feel like, huh, okay, life doesn't have to be crap. Um, you know, it's then, it's bringing something, something good to people that, that they can work with. It certainly seems like professionally, at least, you're, you've found a good space to, to, to occupy between teaching, having your own production company, basically having the lion's share of your own films... And, and making these sorts of films that you want to make. And that, that has been a long journey to get to that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite a selfish way to be, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when it comes down to it, aren't, aren't the creative arts, you know, people like to justify and say that they're giving joy to people, they're doing this, this, but they are actually quite a selfish pursuit, aren't they? Well, at the end I of the think. day, you know, you, you look out the window and you see a tree and you make a mark on a piece of paper that looks a bit like the tree and you yeah. sh- show the other person they go oh wow yeah you know that, that's you, that's all it is really and you want uh, that validation you want yeah you know and but it, but i mean the decision to say i'm going to write reviews for a living or i'm going to make albums for a living or i'm going to make films for a mm. living feels like an incredibly selfish thing to do well maybe it is but the flip side is doesn't mean you, that you, you, it doesn't mean you can't be giving something to other people as a byproduct of that. No, I think, I mean, I think you have to. I, th- yeah, I think yeah, if, yeah. You're, if you're a real artist, then <laughs> you do have to give something of worth mm. to other people. You know, mm. And it's mm. in the eye of the beholder. It may not be a great number of people, whatever, yeah. but um, you do have to connect on some level. That's right. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you're laughed out of town one way or another, right? Well, so. there's, there's lots of people doing this out there. Lots and lots of people. Mm. And... Statistically, we know that 95% of them just haven't got it. Yeah. You know, they, they're essentially just copying. Yeah. Um, a cheap version of something, or even an expensive version of something yeah, that, that's yeah. not good. And the tools we have make that more and more easy. Mm. Um, but you know it when you see it, you know, and I, what I call it is just a sense of the authentic, a sense of truth. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with, with technical facility. Yeah, yeah. It's just that you've captured something that makes somebody feel when, something. When I spoke to Jim Wilson from Phantom Billstickers, he said, everybody knows when something of quality 
turns up. Everyone actually does can spot the authentic. Like people, mm. and we have to sort of rely on that. Yeah, you don't have to be trained. You don't have to be tutored. You don't have to be an expert. You just mm. feel it. You know, mm. because it's something that's been around you all your life. Well, you I always, haven't seen it before. I always mm. get that. What qualifies you to write about the things you write about? And it's mm. like nothing qualifies me apart from my own interest. Mm. You know, that's, I mean, you know, sure, there's time at the wheel. Like, I've spent a lot of time hmm. absorbing things, listening to things, reading other people's take on things and all of that. But uh, fundamentally, what I'm doing is issuing my response to something. And I'm trying to separate the good from the bad in my own head mm-hmm. and then put it out there. And mm-hmm. I don't, doesn't mean I think mine's the definitive take or that I'm right, you're wrong, or whatever. But that's what I'm trying to do. That's that's it. What else is there? And that's yeah. That's it. That that hopefully is valid. I'm I'm finding increasingly that it's not viable, but that doesn't mean it's not yeah, valid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's, <laughs> you know, it's a challenge. Um, yeah, I, I I I think it's it's really hard to pick which way things are going to go. And yeah. um, I mean, personally, I feel that you know the the notion of of the internet is a wild west has got to stop you know we've 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 just got to um accept that um some level of of regulation has got to come in you can't have you know laws around intellectual property that nobody can actually enforce yeah it's crazy and that doesn't represent a threat to civilization or free speech in any way actually Mm, mm. because um you know there's nothing stopping anyone from giving whatever they make away there's nothing stopping anyone exercising their free speech this isn't an argument over free speech it's an argument over property rights mm. and, and also um, um, you, you, you can't have such a broken market for creative goods you know it breaks my heart teaching um, young kids who I know are incredibly talented there's no shortage of talent here in New Zealand for, for a start and and knowing absolutely that any of them that, that persist and work at their craft can actually have the capacity to create, to create little businesses of their own mm. and trade, you know, professionally online mm. if there were suitable protections. Yes. Um, but it's almost like there's a lost generation now who are almost a complete write-off and we have to fix it in the next generation and actually bring back the habit of respect and valuing um, creative goods, mm. of actually knowing that no, um, yeah, maybe maybe thirty five, thirty eight dollars for a CD was was crazy expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it was. Of course it was. And I think that created a lot of resentment. But there is a there is actually a a price point mm. which is much more acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure what it is. It mm. might be ten dollars. Mm. It might be eleven dollars. Whatever. But that price point has got to move much closer towards repaying the cost of making those albums or those films. Well, what, what's your feelings about things like the subscription model? Like, mm. well, you've you've had a film on Netflix that you say. You know, uh, I wish I hadn't. You wish you hadn't. I you wish go, I hadn't. Like, it wasn't going. my choice to put it there. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, so, that returned so nothing. So it got watched lots, but you got nothing from that. We apart, got nothing. apart from maybe a few people could tell you that they've seen your film. Yeah, yeah. Look, even if we hadn't had a crooked distributor, mm-hmm. when that fool put it on Netflix, mm. he essentially crashed any value that yeah, film might have had it. on any other platform. That was it. It just killed it. Yeah. And we didn't get much money. Yeah. Um, it was it was pathetic. Um, so the subscription model 
if you look at the actual economics of it, um, great for consumers. Not it's, great. It's great for the takers, not great for the makers. Well, I don't know who it's great for, honestly. I, I, I think it's it's sort of prospective shareholders who are propping it up. Think of the you know in in the Roadrunner cartoons the. Yeah. The code, he runs out off the cliff and then for a few seconds he's running on thin air. You know, it looks like he's okay. Mm. That's Spotify. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> they've got all those subscribers and they're still not making a profit. How the hell does that work? Yeah. It's, it's sort of magical unicorn economics yeah. Yeah. Um, is, is the only way to describe it. Uh, Pandora and all those, all the same. You know, the, the, the CEOs are caning it off their um, IPOs. Mm. But... Um, it doesn't make but much it, sense. I'm thinking, well, I guess it's the same with Spotify, but I'm thinking like Netflix and there, it, it enables and validates streaming and it, mm. and it you know, it, it legalises it or whatever in people's mind. They, they, they don't need to worry that they're breaking a law because they're paying well, Netflix, for a service and then they're receiving whatever they want. And, and so that's what I mean, it's good for the takers. Well, see, Netflix is sort of pointing the way to perhaps a slightly more viable future. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's incredibly likely that they will raise their subscription rates for a start. Yeah. But the other thing they've been doing is um, actually going into the production space. So yes. they're no longer just picking up the dregs, they're, they're putting they're up creating. premium material. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so you can that's see how they will... Um, Gradually, quality of that overall seems to be very high. Yeah, very yeah. high and improving, yeah. like and increasing. You know, like yeah. Although you know, will that stay the case? Mm. Because they, you know, it's it's just hard to know. But I think I think there'll be no shortage of demand that that, mm. that, that people are always going to want um, entertainment in mm. some form. And yes, it'll it'll be coming via the internet. So what? It doesn't matter where it comes from. Yeah. The problem is how it's paid for. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fact that currently the old world um, models, like mm. you know, bricks and mortar theatre, they make way more money than than streaming. I mean, it's, mm. there's, there's nothing in it. The, the income from streaming is is a pittance compared to even what the you know the broken, degraded theatres are, are returning. So, um, and that's what's paying. For those big movies that all these dweebs sit around moaning about mm. and wanting to watch for free, um, you know, if they hate Hollywood that much, I, I just don't get why they carry on. Yeah, watching. participated in any because, way. Because I think I think because they have this illusion that they ought to be participating. Mm. That you know, why aren't people listening to me? Yeah, you know, I have opinions. Yes. And boy, do I exercise those opinions. <laughs> why, aren't this, why aren't those damn studios listening to me? Um, it's, it's kind of sad and mm. pathetic, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's all, that's all part of the culture that's been enabled around um, people, and I'm as much to blame as anyone, mm. staring at a screen for far too long than they should, right? And, mm. and treating everything through that, mm. like liaising through that with the world hmm. I guess if you if you had to pay for it maybe you'd be a little bit more selective and maybe you'd have time for other more productive pursuits mm. would be my advice mm. oh I don't mean consuming media media I mean everything like, like yeah. for, I don't mean I don't mean illegally watching films I just mean that's 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 how right. you communicate with people now mm. a lot of people do is through this machine so there is a the social aspect has moved away you know yeah we don't need to go to the movies 
with a bunch of people because we could all sit around online and talk about that we've all seen the film and that we all saw the film independently, but then we could have a discussion around what we thought of it. Yeah. And people could do that without leaving their houses, and for some reason that's preferable to a lot of people. I don't know why. The discussion often seems to degenerate incredibly Pretty, quickly. Yeah, exactly. Polarized exactly. Sort it's not really a discussion. And um, yeah, I, I, I do notice now, um, you know, wherever I go, there just seem to be a lot of dead eyed, walking dead zombies mm. sort of moving but not looking where they're going because they've got a screen in front of well, them I went to um, Disneyland earlier this year first time went there took my son mm. and I was amazed that people in front of us were walking around walking around Disneyland with their phones playing that Pokemon Go and I thought this is <laughs> this is just absurd sort of you know it was quite a I don't know a metaphor or something it was just to me it was just like yeah. the the uh a logical extreme of sort of uh, being overstimulated that it was just a walk in the park to walk around mm. Disneyland which I had mixed feelings about as a place anyway I kind yeah. of I kind of yeah. loved getting to see it go there but I also found it very strange but why would you go there to just play Pokemon Go which you could do anywhere they might have stranger more interesting creatures there I don't know it was just I just didn't get it at all I was like hey, you yeah. can't be absorbing both those things at the same time and, I feel you, like and you don't need to because surely one replaces the other like I, I think it's like a drug and, and people want to feel something um, and increasingly what that leads to is you know the, the, the most precious commodity in, in any kind of entertainment is authenticity yeah. and that's the rarest thing um, you know film after film you know to take my field mm. Alpha's all this sort of vacuous, sensational um, spectacle, mm. but you feel nothing because it's not actually attached to anything authentic. Yeah. You know about you know what makes us tick as people, what what makes us happy, what makes us sad. Uh, and the moment you do get a little glimmer of that, uh, in, in whatever genre it might be, um, straight away you see how, how audiences respond to that. Mm. So, um, Do you instill in your students um, some of these things we're talking about and some sort of ideals around paying for content? And I guess they are going to face that battle themselves if they're serious about it. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but um, I, I have... I have mentioned it, yes, and, it and what, to, what's the take on it? Because well, what what I tend to do, it's quite simple. I say, well, how many of you here want to have um, like a professional life in the creative yeah. industries? Most of them put up their hands. Yeah. How many of you streaming, um, downloading? Well, how many of you are um, downloading mm. Ill illegal stuff? Mm. And half of them. Half of them put up their and hands. You know that should be more, but yeah. And then yeah. I just uh, you know explain the contradiction. Yeah. And leave it with them. Yeah. Um, and yeah some of them i know take it on board yeah and what more can you do i mean yeah 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 no i just want so i mean because i this is a conversation that we can't solve but i mm. feel like you are someone that has invested in it at least beyond the hypothetical or philosophical because you are still making films mm. and you have some purchase on you know the people that are going to go ahead to make films well i also have um an extensive back catalogue, which I'd hoped well, by this time yeah, of life 
might actually be earning me something, and yes. it does, but it's a, it's a trickle. Yes, rather when than, it could be a hell of a lot more. Yeah, and it just pisses me off when yeah. when I see for the umpteenth time, some clown has has ripped one of my films yeah. and put it on YouTube, claiming to be me, attached advertising, and accrued forty four thousand views. I mean that that. You can see how infuriating that, that can be. And then <laughs> yeah. I'm the bad guy for getting it taken down. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, you don't want to share your work. Uh, well, no. I don't <laughs> not, want to just give it away. Not in this way. <laughs> not in yeah, this way. Yeah. Um, you know, when you can go to Vimeo yeah. and, and watch my film for five bucks. Five yeah. bucks is not a lot of money. You no. Know? I think that's pretty fair value. Yeah. To watch a feature film for five bucks. But um, very few people. Yeah, are. I like I like what Louis C.K. does, where he, he has his bailout list, and he mm-hmm. you know says he did that earlier this week. He's he's made a film. I think he's directed the return to stand up comedy by a guy called Barry Crimmins, who's mm-hmm. an interesting character. And um, there was a doco made about him the other year, and this is his sort of return to stand up. He was quite big in the seventies and eighties, and Louis directed it, and he's put it out on his platform, and it's five dollars. And for five dollars, you get to, I think, download it three times. So you can yeah. put it across yeah. cross more than one device, that, and you that, can even gift it to someone. Yeah. But that's five dollars, and that's fair enough for a ninety-minute or whatever it is—an eighty-minute, you know, stand-up special. That's terrific, and I've got no problem with that. And I, and I you know, I, I think everyone should be investigating those sorts. Those of, sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. The problem um, is much more old-fashioned, though. Yeah. Um, which is, is, I think, it's completely irrelevant to whether it's online or anywhere else. Um, it's marketing. Yeah. And, and the cost of marketing. And it's also uh, taken Louis C.K. 25 years yeah. of failing and succeeding at yeah. both filmmaking and stand-up to have a brand and a personality it, and yeah. a voice that yeah. people now trust and go, I'll go there. You know, like yeah. if I make my first film and put it online... Okay, some people know me for, from some other, and I'm not making a film, by the way, but, you know, mm. like, some people know me from some other pursuits. They might want to get involved in it. Mm. I might be better off than your neighbour who who's not known at all. Mm. But I've got nowhere near the chance that you've got of doing that, and you don't have the chance that nowhere Ron, Ron no. Howard has of doing that, yeah. and so on and so on. Most so, of my um, sales tend to be driven... By association with um, a broadcaster, one of my films. Every time something of yours is broadcast on TV, yeah, um, you pick I'll up some sales. Every time one of my films gets broadcast somewhere, yeah, you know, in New Zealand or Australia or yeah. wherever, um, then I notice a spike in hits on my website, yeah, yeah. and there may or may not be, you know, one or two or three sales on mm. Vimeo, or I'm, if I'm really lucky, I'll sell a DVD. Selling a DVD is way more. <laughs> <laughs> um, beneficial to me than, yes. than selling a, an online yeah. thing. So, you know, those old world, old fashioned things still pay way more. Um, but, you know, I can't afford to advertise. Mm. And um, mm. where would I even start? Mm. You know, um, mm. uh, I, I've advertised in the listener for a start. So I think, mm. okay, maybe my, my audience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't think mm. the resulting sales even mm. paid for the ad. So mm. I didn't mm. keep going with that. So you're in a, in a little yeah. bit of a bind, you know, building up a brand, building up um, a profile, it has to be associated with something. And unsurprisingly, the two films of mine that seem to move are Forgotten Silver yep. um, and Last Dogs of Winter, yeah. films at opposite ends of my... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you, 
That's the way it is. And yeah. uh, I don't want to throw good money after bad. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So you're content to keep making films. You've got, you mentioned a couple of projects that yeah. are circulating. Yeah. Well, you know, ruminating. I think if I feel like there's, there's a good enough idea there, then I'll follow it up. When I did Act of Kindness, I always felt that was a great idea and could be a really lovely film. It was a hard one to do. I had no expectations for it at all. Mm. Um, but I had learned a thing or two about how to sell an idea. Mm. And I, I put everything I knew about that into um, promoting it during the last film yeah. festival. Yeah. We sold out in every town. Like, every single screening was sold out, mm. which was a matter of some surprise to me. But then when I reflected on it, I thought, well, actually, mm. um, it, it sounds like a relatively good time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe I had enough of a brand with that audience because yeah. I've been, you know, putting films into that festival for a time. And, and people came along and they liked it. So it connected, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever... Um, whatever we said about it in order to promote the film we didn't lie you know mm. they, they mm. came along and they, and, they, and they experienced what they hoped they were going to experience and so that, that's sort of how I'm rolling really um, you know with, with, with the next film I don't, I don't actually see a lot of commercial potential but I think it's a great idea and I think it's something certain people will be interested in that's good enough for me mm. I'll just mm. go ahead and do it mm. well um, do, is there anything else we need to talk about I feel like we've Covered, covered no, a lot. No. Is there anything you want to? I don't particularly want to talk about dying from cancer. Um, you don't want to? Oh well, I can talk a little. I, I don't think like that, by the way. No, no, no. I, Look, I've held off asking you because yeah. you, you know when I contacted you about having yeah. a chat to you, I already knew about it from following you on Facebook, and I went back and reread that, and 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 uh, you you'd sort of respectfully said you don't really want to document the process beyond letting people know so I held off asking you about it I um I, I don't feel like I've got anything fresh to say yeah you know I'm just another person who's unlucky enough I did notice the, I did notice the newspaper quoted your Facebook yes and a story and I, I assume they didn't actually come to you for a comment I, I, I outed myself without yeah. realising it yeah um well uh, you know I was careful to say exactly what I wanted to say on Facebook mm. but that was meant for Mm. You know, it was public, so yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and the purpose for that was I just didn't want to be having the same, the conversation, same conversation over and over, over because it's yeah. quite it's quite difficult and painful. Yeah. And I just wanted to break the news for people who are interested. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was quite a surprise when when, when the newspaper did it. I didn't mind really because they they did actually quote a lot of what I had to say yeah, rather yeah, than making yeah. stuff up. Yeah. So that's fine. And you're a Wellington figure. Yeah. You've, you know, you've spent your life here. Yeah. I mean, it was sort so. of a little bit flattering in a way that, yes. that anyone cared, but. Yeah. Um, and I've had nothing but good um, come from that. Yeah. Um, the, the only contributions that the newspaper <laughs> made to the story were talking about battling cancer. And yes. So they, they, they fall so readily on cliches, yes. you know, yeah. and, which is annoying. Um, there's no battling going on here. Um, I'm just living with it. You know, that's, yeah. that's the reality. I'm, I'm, I'm living with something that I can't change. Yeah. And um, that is affecting my outlook on, on life. Um, uh and I feel, you know, that there's some good has come from it in a way and that it's it's really assisting me to focus on what I want to do. Yeah. Focus on what's valuable. What, um, what, what gives you happiness. Maybe something, you know, this is not new. This isn't a, a fresh perception. Yes. But cancer can actually um, magnify joy. It can magnify, mm. um, you know, everything becomes more vibrant and mm. um, special in a way. 
I guess, you know, seeing your own end, yeah. it can't help but do that, right? And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm currently going through chemotherapy. I hope I don't look like it. Um, I, I actually feel pretty good, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> strangely enough, and, yeah. I, and I'm really knocking on wood that that continues. Yeah. Um, well, again, you gave a warning about that, and uh, and uh, when you opened the door to me, you know, I know no, no, nothing beyond the fact that yeah. it's been about 10 years since we last yeah. um, saw each other and spoke. There's a lot of stereotypes and cliches around cancer and its treatment, and I'm discovering that it's a way more nuanced, nuanced and, and complex than that. I mean, it is an unpredictable thing. It, mm. it's, it's, it's an awful passenger to have in your body because you don't know what it's going to do next. Yeah, um, and I'm just, you know, well, I think it's there for the ride. <laughs> Although yes. maybe I'm there for the ride now. Yeah, and, and I don't know what my end will be or when it'll come, but um, uh, I, I don't, I don't think I'm going anywhere um, in the next few years. Yeah, um, but I am thinking like someone who I don't expect to make it into old age. Put it yeah. that way. You're, so the, the deadline yeah. has shifted. I don't have a, I don't have a deadline. Um, um, it, it may be as little as three or four years. It may be seven. It may be fourteen. I simply no, but don't I mean, know. In, in your mind, in terms of when you say I'm not expecting to go yeah, into old yeah. age now. Well, you know, I'd like to make it to retirement age. Mm. Mm. And uh, you know that that and I have I have um, a couple of documentary projects and at least one drama project. I would love to um, see those through. Mm. And I'll expect to, mm. really, but mm. I don't know if if this thing takes a turn for the worse. Um, I simply don't know. So I have to, I have to just. So when did when did you find out? How long did you leave it until you did that Facebook post? Oh, um, I was diagnosed in um, July, mm-hmm. but I've, I've I've had a sort of benign prostate condition for some years, so I always knew it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, hoped it wasn't. Mm. Um, and so it was a bit of a shock yeah yeah I definitely saw the black spots dancing in front of my eyes and um and uh yeah that was a hard day a really hard day Mm. um and I think I think the toughest thing about cancer is it destabilizes any kind of certainty so you, you never quite know where you are so you're always looking for um you know what's the new normal yes and and okay that's it fine and you just hope that lasts as long as possible mm-hmm. before the next thing comes along. So far, I've had a pretty easy ride, you know, and I and I understand that and um, hope for <laughs> hope for it to mm. last. Mm. Um, and and uh, you know, you just try not to think about where it might be. Whatever will happen, will happen. And um, uh, I just you know want to be. Um, I guess working and productive as long as I can because mm. that, that's what makes me happy mm, mm. Yeah. and the yeah. chemotherapy is what sort of ordeal um, at this stage I, well it's 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 a three weekly you know they empty a, a one litre bag of toxic sludge into my veins mm. and um, you then go through um, a little bit of a over three weeks a little bit of a circuit. It, it, it's relatively minor in my case, mm-hmm. I guess because uh, I'm starting from a point of view of being fit and healthy. Yeah. And um, my body can tolerate it reasonably well. 
Um, so it had pretty minor um, response. Um, they said my hair would fall out. Well, isn't it's still there, yeah. such as it was. Um, although, who knows, in the next few weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know whether there might be a cumulative effect, you know, like, say, as you go into three weeks, four weeks. But that's not the advice I've had. Mm. It's, it's, what I was told was how you go in the first couple of weeks is, is a good indicator of how you'll cope. And you sit in the chemo lounge with with other people, mm. and it is a lounge, <laughs> with lazy boy recliners and, and drips. Mm. And... Um, you know, you look around the room and you see a pretty wide range of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's not one size fits all. Like, yeah. chemotherapy is 300 different types and some of them are highly toxic and, and you know, they have quite a, a bad impact. Mm. And others, um, not so much. Mm. So, um, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I... You know, the moment you start talking about cancer, yeah. you go into this dark space. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's there. It's a reality. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a curable case. I know that. Um, I'm someone who has to sort of live with it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, receive palliative care, they call it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I could go on for a good long time, and you know, in, in relatively fit condition well, so that's what I hope for yeah I certainly hope for that too and, mm. and I think even just you talking about um, it a little bit now as you know it's I don't really know what to say but it's nice to hear someone matter of factly explain mm-hmm. what's happening and 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 I, I picked up on that language as I have done before when someone else has said it uh, of battle mm. which uh, you know never feels quite right well, you, you know, I watched my sister die of, of bowel cancer, and she did battle. She fought it as hard as she could. Um, sure. But she had uh, major traumatic surgeries as part of the um, as, as part of the treatment, and so you know there was pain and suffering aplenty. And you know, I do I, I fear that I I I don't want that, and. Um, you know, with the with the current debate over euthanasia and whatever, you, mm. you can bet that my ears are pricking up and, and listening because, mm. you know, at, at what point uh, do you do you sort of give up? Um, but you know, just because you you have a um, cancer diagnosis doesn't mean you're going to go straight into that's right yeah. into battle mode. Yeah. Um, because what can you do other than you know we all want to survive? It's it's so strong in us. Mm. Shit, mm. I've got things to do, man. I, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> don't want to just pop off. Well, um, you, I only got married again last year, and yeah. you know, I, I, I want some some good years. Yeah, with the woman I love. So yes. you know, well, you you know, you just sound so. Um, uh, you know, anyone that listens is still listening. That's listen from the start. You just sound so focused and vital as a person involved in film. Still, you know, you don't. Mm. You know, you said. I was going to say this earlier, you brought up, um, you know, feeling, staying too long in the reviewing capacity and feeling a bit jaded after a few mm, years. Mm. And I was going to say, when has that ever cropped up for you as a filmmaker? And, you you know, you said there, obviously there's been at least one time when you think, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm. I can't or whatever, it's not viable or whatever the reason is. But you seem to have found a way back into pursuing film. Well, whatever you do, you know, whether it's creative or business or whatever, you have to think really hard about why am I doing it. Mm. And I think I think the secret to happiness is trying to find the right adjustment 
between what it is you want to do and what other people expect you to do. Yeah, yeah. And I've always found when I'm drifting into trying to please other people or do what other people expect me to do, um, that's when you head into the landmine territory. You know, that's mm. when things go wrong when you become ha- unhappy and miserable. Um, I don't believe that that means living uh, selfishly. It just it's just pragmatic to actually understand yourself and what drives you and what what it is that makes you happy. Mm. And um, you're always going to make better choices, I think, when you when you actually understand what it is that makes you happy and and make make that choice as opposed to the other one. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've learned that actually from stories, from fictional stories. Fiction mm. does have value because it points to all the, you know, the things that are important um, and, and the pressure points in our lives. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I have gone through, uh, you know, major life crisis, not cancer, but, you know, divorce, which is terrible. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. It's so yeah. stressful. Yeah. It's so hard. And, um, but I always felt sure that I was doing the right thing because I listened to that inner voice mm. of, you know why are you doing this and and, and I knew why because I thought about it really mm. really deeply and people were saying oh you're crazy and this and that and the other thing but um, it's not their choice to make it's, mm. it's mine and I don't I can't live for other people mm. and um, yeah I don't I don't know where I came across that that, that thought and I thought that is so true you know the, the thing that defines happiness is yeah is you you have to live as if you mean it and 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 think about what it is that you want to do as opposed to what other people expect of you because if you if you live according to what other people expect of you um, I, I think you'll pretty much always go wrong. Mm-hmm.